Okay, Jesse, last week was a story of a very sleazy doctor. What is the story this time around? When a divorced Southern Belle sets her sights on a strapping younger man, she lets nothing get in her way. Not his wife, nor his disapproving parents. Within only months, the relationship explodes into deadly violence and over the years, multiple manipulations and even some poisonings. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jessie Prey. And this is Love Murder. Hi, Andy. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about lovers scorned, deaths to mourn, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on TikTok and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, pretty please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app. Subscribe and review to help new people discover this show. Also, if you're interested in supporting the show more directly, just like so many of you have been, which is unbelievably incredible, please head on over to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod where you can learn all about the different tiers of support. Yes, we love you guys so much. And we've also been having so much fun on our happy hours every month where we get to know everyone and have some deep personal chats. This month, we talked about our favorite spooky season shows and movies. And next week, we're going to talk about personal hometown true crime stories. Yeah. In addition to possibly doing a painting session with one of our (laughs) listeners. So that's kind of amazing. Shout out to Amanda for creating a love murder canvas to us. And I'd also like to shout out an amazing new set of patrons. Bailey E, Samantha M, and Erica Y. Samantha P, Victoria M, and Gina W., Brandy T, Carrie S, and Gabby E, Rebecca S, Camilla H, and Taryn M, Mari A, Heather R, and Alyssa S, Ilum A, and Chris S. Woo! We have one other exciting thing to announce is that this is the first episode that's coming out in October, which I'm sure many of you are aware of or might remember from last year, is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. So we will be doing a fundraiser for the National Domestic Violence Hotline. And coming up this Sunday, actually, we will have members of the Love Murder team running a 5K and I will be doing the half marathon. Yay! Yay. So we will have more details about how you guys can help us donate all month long on our socials and we'll direct you to more information there because we are still firming up exactly how we will be running it and how you guys can contribute to everything. And we will be doing it for all of October. Great news. Great news. But I think we've had a lot to talk about early on in this episode. So I want to get right into this because this is going to be a very long and complex episode. So we should not waste any more time, Andy. Let's go. Pat Taylor always got what she wanted, especially when it came to her fiancé, Tom Allenson. Tom was a tall, strapping man, still in the bloom of youth at 30, while his bride was some six years older or so. 
Both had marriages behind them, two short ones for Tom, one long one for Pat. Both had children, and both felt that this time they finally knew what real love really was. The two could not have been more different. Tom was solid, stoic, a gentle blacksmith who shooed horses with ease and grace, while Pat was a fine-boned beauty prone to dramatic outbursts. There was nothing Tom wouldn't do to make his sugar, as he called Pat, happy, including dressing up like Rhett Butler for their May 9th, 1974 wedding. Pat had always idolized and identified with Scarlett O'Hara, so for their big day, she fashioned two costumes. A giant hoop skirt, big puffy sleeve dress for herself, with delicate gloves and her hair swept up in a bouffant do, and at her side was Tom looking kind of just a little bit, I'm going to be honest, ridiculous, in a long coat, a white satin vest, and a shirt with big puffy ruffles at the neck and wrists. Wow. He's like a tall, kind of like blacksmithy guy. So this is not, the frou-frou look I don't think is really his thing, although he's still handsome. And it probably didn't help that he was wearing a top hat and this like god-awful fake little Clark Gable mustache. Yeah, no, I don't think any of that would help. <laughs> I don't think fake mustaches on your wedding day is a, an especially good look. Yeah, they looked a little bit more appropriate for a costume contest than a wedding, but it was Pat's dream. This is how she wanted everyone to look. She asked everybody to wear their best plantation garb. And since it was Pat's day, Pat got what she wanted. And you know what? Pat Taylor Allenson always did seem to get what she wanted. Or did she? Years later, her mother would say that the notion that Pat always got what she wanted was ludicrous. In fact, Pat had never gotten what she wanted. Never really. Never ever, her mother thought. Even her dream wedding had been marred by the absence of Tom's parents. And then it had ended in a minor calamity. As the couple left separately for their reception dinner, a car collided with Pat's vehicle. The car accident caused considerable damage, and Pat ended up with a broken collarbone. Ooh. Which is very painful. Yeah, I, ugh, that icks me. Perhaps the wedding day was an indication of the marriage to come. Dressed up in pretense, the ugly truths all tucked away in the voluminous folds of a Southern Belle's dress. Because the results of this union would cause casualties much greater than the simple car wreck that day. Multiple people would lose their lives. One family would be left utterly decimated. And another stretched thin and emotionally scarred for decades. All because of the actions of one sociopathic beauty and the man who would do anything for her love. Well, almost anything. Yeah, we've got a lot going on in this one. There is love affairs. There is poisoning. There's shocking allegations that may or may not be true. I'm going to mention suicide once or twice in this episode. So a trigger warning for that. This is one that I have had quite a few requests for. And it is truly a saga. Just when you think it's going to end, it continues to go on. You cannot believe this roller coaster into a train wreck we are about to embark upon today. And I did put this one off for a while, Andy, because the book is incredible. It's an Anne Rule. We're in Anne Rule territory, y'all. It's called Everything She Ever Wanted, but it is 
643 pages. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, yeah, I was really trying to find the time where I could get into this one a lot. And man, I love Anne Rule. It's kind of like a gift and a curse because she dives so deep into backstories and goes back generations. It's perfect to, for you. It's perfect for me. And as a consumer, I absolutely love it. As a podcaster, I'm like, oh my gosh, if I did this faithfully to her rendition, you guys, this would be like a 15-hour podcast. <laughs> That's amazing. I've condensed it as best I can, but if you're interested, I would highly recommend this read because even though it was 643 pages, it absolutely flew by. I also watched an episode of Evil In-Laws, a little foreshadowing there, season one, episode four, and there's a very campy Lifetime miniseries about this, which we will talk about at the end. We love a camp. A lot of camp, a lot of camp in that Lifetime. So without further ado, let's talk about our newlyweds years before they were cosplaying as Rhett and Scarlet. <laughs> Mary Linda Patricia Van, who would later become Patty Radcliffe and then Pat Taylor and eventually Pat Allenson, was born on August 22nd, 1937. So her mother, Marguerite, was 16 years old and Pat's brother, Kent, would join the family three years later. So she's a pretty young mom. That seemed to be kind of like a tradition or something that just happened in Pat's family for generations. All of the women seem to have babies extremely early. Pat and Kent's parentage is a little murky. So Marguerite claimed to have married and then eventually divorced a man named Robert Van, which is where Pat got her original maiden name. But no records show this to be true. And everyone believed that really she had just married that guy to cover up the fact that she had been having an affair with this guy who was married, who was known as a brawler and a drinker. <laughs> okay. And his name was Cam Pridgen. And everyone said like in this town that he had like these very distinctive ears and that both kids had them. And it looks like by the time Kent was born that Marguerite was not even keeping up the pretense that she was married to somebody else. She was presenting as a single mother at that point to the tune of leaving Pat with her mother and she was actually went away to one of those places where you could have your baby and then they would adopt it out for you. But she changed her mind. She said she couldn't end up adopting out the baby after all. And so she had to like pay them back, whatever this, I don't know if it was religious affiliated place. She had to like pay them back the money for her medical care because she refused to give up Kent wow. at that point. So she definitely was a full-on single mother at this point. And in 1942, her fate changed. She was working as a server in a diner, and she crossed paths with a handsome military officer named Clifford Radcliffe. Wow. Yes, the two felt very deeply in love. He was apparently handsome. He ended up working his way up the ranks and becoming a colonel eventually extremely well respected. He was from a very nice family in Westchester, New York. And he just fell in love with Marguerite on the spot. Now, Marguerite, this is where Pat might get it eventually because Marguerite was a giving and loving woman that was very well considered socially after many years of marriage with the colonel. 
However, it seems like she's also prone to bending the truth because we don't know exactly who the biological father of her first children are. And also she told people that they had met at a party and her sisters were like, that's a freaking lie. She was waitressing at a diner and she waited on him. That's how they met. Huh. <laughs> yeah. Which is not even, it's like an, such an insignificant detail to lie about. I know, but I feel like that's for people that like bending the truth, that's like an easy lie to paint in whatever color you want to have Yeah, it, maybe it's know? like more romantic if you're at a party and your eyes meet across the room or she wanted to like portray herself more as an equal. Yeah, I was going to say, it's like, I feel like that's definitely trying to elevate. I mean, if he's coming from Westchester, New York, he obviously has some money. Yeah, and and he had absolutely no problem taking on her children and adopting them to the point where the children truly believed they were biologically his as well. So again, kind of fudging the truth a little bit. It's unclear whether they straight up perpetuated the lie or it was just a lie of omission. The kids assumed that was their dad, and so they just never corrected them. Yeah, and if they like really do feel like that, it's like... It does. It's beside the point, but it is, I've read like a lot of things about the psychology of this. It's important to talk about how your kids came into the family or how, you know, if there's something that they would, might be surprised about later, yeah, that they were adopted or something like that. It's good to just, in very simple terms, tell them early on. So it just is a matter of their life, but it doesn't matter because their dad is their real dad. Yeah. Versus in their 20s or something that they find out and they feel like they never knew this important part of who they were. Yeah. So yeah. But I think back in these days, I mean, we're talking about the early 40s. No one was thinking about that. They were just thinking, who cares? Everyone thinks I'm the dad and they think I'm their dad. So I'm their dad. We're never going to tell anyone otherwise. So Pat had been living with her maternal grandmother while her mother was working and trying to keep food on the table for her two young children and sending money back to her mother. And at that point, little Patty was an adorable baby and she was utterly spoiled. Anything she wanted in the world, she got, she got full attention from her grandmother and her aunts and everyone who's living in that household. And actually her, her maternal grandmother had a very hard time giving her back to Marguerite, when Marguerite said, I've married the colonel and I want my daughter back because we're going to be raising the children as a family. And I think it was initially very hard on Pat as well. She was, I think, five and a half at that time. And she was very unaccustomed to sharing the attention. And as a result, she despised and resented her little brother, Kent. Oh, no. Yeah. Also, on the other hand, I think that Marguerite always felt very regretful that she had missed the first couple years of Patty's life. Okay. So she went out of her way to kind of overindulge Pat as well. Yeah, in a not-so-positive way. In a not-so-positive way. Like, we talk about all of these terrible parents who mistreat or neglect their children, and Anne Rule posited in this, in what we're going to see unfold, there's, you can go too far the other way as well. Absolutely, yeah. One relative said about Pat's relationship with her little brother, Kent, quote, she hated him. She always wanted him gone. Oof. And Pat almost got her way very early because Kent contracted a bad case of meningitis when he was only three years old. Oh, no. I know. And it almost killed him. Instead, it left Kent alive, but almost completely deaf. Oh, 
but he was so young that they said that he became extremely adept at reading lips. Really? Yes. So they said that you would have no idea unless you had turned away from him or he couldn't see your mouth. Yep. Wow. That's so impressive. It's very impressive. It's really interesting when, because kids' brains, when something like this happens at three, how adaptable they are and how adaptable their brain is. It's always fascinates me, which is also why I'm trying <laughs> to get Alden to learn Spanish right now because I'm like, we can't lose the window. <laughs> <laughs> it is very impressive. Patty was a beautiful child who grew into a beautiful teenager who was coddled by her parents and all those around her. They had like a saying that I didn't even understand. It was like, Patty don't even know how to whistle. She's so pretty. Like, I, I don't know if it meant like somebody would whistle for her. I'm like, I don't even know what that means. But it was like, by all accounts, everyone was like, well, she doesn't have to do anything for herself because she's so good looking. Huh. Yeah. But that's not always great. No, 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 no. She was also artistic. I don't think she got classically good academic grades, but she was very adept at art of many styles, but especially designing costumes and dresses. Cool. However, at 15 years old, she did get pregnant and she dropped out to marry an 18-year-old guy who was also on the military base, but was an army brat himself. So he had not yet enlisted, but I think he was about to. Okay. This guy's name was Gil Taylor. So this is her first husband. And he was very proud to marry beautiful teenage Pat. But just like Pat's mom before her, there were rumors that Gil's baby might not be biologically his. Oh, no. Yeah. Pat had been running around with another guy, a soldier on the base. Now she's 15, so that's icky. But I don't know how old this soldier was. So he didn't know. So it was kind of, maybe it was Gil's kid. Maybe it wasn't. We don't know. The pregnancy did force Pat to get married, though, and fast. And her parents were not exactly thrilled with her partner. With Gil? With Gil, yeah. Her mom, Marguerite, later said, all they had in common was physical attraction. Pat was vastly superior in IQ. The colonel had wanted her to go to a fine school to study art as she was so talented, but that did not happen. The baby was a little girl named Susan, and she was born in March of 1953. And very quickly... After he enlisted and the baby was born, Gil was shipped off to Korea to serve. So Pat and the baby moved in with her parents, and Pat would spend most of her life and definitely the majority of her marriage to Gil living with her parents and not her husband. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's not a good way to have a marriage. Not a good start. They did manage, though, to knock out a couple more babies in the intervening years. Daughter Debbie and son Ronnie were born in 1955 and 1958. Pat tried to live with just Gil and her family on a few occasions, but this did not work out. Her daughter, Susan, was on the Evil In-Laws show, and she would say that it just didn't seem like Pat was very able or good to be patient with the children. She didn't have the disposition for young children. And her parents took on a lot of that burden when they were living together because her mother was very hands-on with the children. So it could kind of cover up those deficiencies. But when she was just with her husband, who was a typical 1950s dude who was not helping with childcare, it became overwhelming for Pat. 
Uh, yeah, I would think so. Yeah. So most of the time she was happier moving back in with her family. And it did seem like Margaret and the colonel were generally okay with this arrangement. And it would work out until another family member would need to maybe crash there or move in or just needed help from her parents for any reason. And then she would get tremendously jealous and very petty. Weird. Like her deaf brother. Yes, that's where exactly where I'm going next. In late 1965 and early 1966, Kent was having a very difficult time and he had to move home very briefly. So he he just in general was having, I mean, the thing that happened to him as a baby is one thing, but then he had desperately wanted to serve in the military because he wanted to be just like his hero, his father, the colonel. And they told him he could not because he was deaf. I know, but I'm... Ugh. Obviously, like, but there's no position at all for anyone who's hearing impaired in the military. I'm sure there is now, but it didn't seem like in the 50s and 60s. Yeah. Yeah. So I forget exactly what he ended up doing for a career, but it was definitely a second choice thing. And he felt like he didn't quite fit in with the family that was at that point a very military family with his sister even marrying a military man who came from a military family. And then he had had two heartbreaks. There was one girl who had broken his heart when they were stationed in Germany together when he was younger. And then he had gotten engaged to another woman who was also from a military family. And she had out of the blue canceled their wedding. And she just told him, I can't really talk about it. It's nothing you did. I just can't get married to you. And it was so confusing that he did try to move and live somewhere else. But eventually he got a random phone call in the middle of the night saying like, go home. There's somebody who has some information for you. And we think that this was a friend of Pat's calling him, though he didn't know this. Because when he got home, Pat had a couple of very life altering and mean spirited disclosures to give her poor brother, Kent, who was already pretty much down about what was going on. First, she told him that his fiance was a lesbian. And that is why she wasn't marrying him because she had never loved him. And she had only been using him as a beard, essentially. And this was true. That was why Cindy said she could not marry Kent. That was his fiance. But it wasn't because she was using him as a beard. It was because she truly cared for him and loved him. And she initially was like, well, we'll have a good life together because I care about him so much. But then when push came to shove, she was like, I'm not going to allow him to live this lie. But it's also the 60s, the South, and she didn't want to tell him why exactly. So this was horrible. How did Pat find out? I have no idea. It was horrible that it, it was delivered in this way, like a gut punch. And it was very mean-spirited, like saying that there was something wrong with him, that he didn't know that she was a lesbian, that she had just been using him, like no woman would actually love him. And then I think they got into some argument and she said, well, that's not all. I got to tell you something else. Did you know that you're not actually the colonel's son? You're not his biological son? No, she did not. She went there after this man is his idol. And She's somehow, which doesn't make any sense to me, she's the oldest. So (laughs) 
She was saying that, like, somehow she's the colonel's daughter, but he's not the colonel's son. So that's implying either their mother cheated, I guess. But it doesn't it kind of defies rationale that she's, like, saying that's why we're all alike and you're different was essentially what she was trying to say to him, which was obviously not the case. They both had a different biological father. And she knows that. I think she knew it. I mean, she was also five and a half when she met the colonel. And I know that my daughter is only just turning five, but she would absolutely remember her life over the last year or so or more and know that she had just met a person who was new to her life. I mean, I guess you could always say like he was away for the military or something. Who knows? But yeah, I mean, there's so many things. Yeah. But still, it's not okay to to like out that information. To out that information in a, a harmful way. And she said, so this is a quote from the Anne Rule book. This was what she allegedly said to him. You're not our kind, you know. You don't even know who you are. You think Pop is your father, but he isn't. You're a bastard and you're so stupid, you don't even know it. Oh, I'd say that's much meaner than what you just said. <laughs> yes. I, I don't even think that I can like make words that mean. <laughs> Anne Rule wrote that it was an incredibly cruel thing to do, obviously. The little boy who had endured deafness, the teenager who had survived a broken heart, the man who saw one marriage and his hopes for another fail, he had everything he believed in taken away from him in those appalling sentences. Oh my God, savage. He was never the same again. He dated a little bit again, but his heart wasn't really in it. He started drinking too much. And his ability to deal with loss was almost gone. I mean, she just brought him low. On February 1st of 1966, Kent actually, this is a trigger warning, guys, for suicide, shot himself to death in his car. This is also really sad because he did not know it at the time, but he really did have something to live for. I mean, of course, even without this information that I'm about to tell you guys, he had something to live for, obviously. But he had been casually dating a flight attendant, and that flight attendant on the same day had just found out that she was pregnant with his baby. Oh my God, that just gave me goosebumps. Mm -hmm. When she found out about his death, she just could not fathom raising the baby by herself. So she did have an abortion. And this is crazy. Six months after Kent died, this woman also died in a plane crash. Oh, my God. Isn't that tragic? And I, I almost wonder because she was with another guy. She was in a two-seater plane that crashed. It was not a commercial airline. I almost wonder if he had lived, if she would have been with him and their growing else. pregnancy. Yeah. And not on that plane. Yeah, it was almost like a domino effect of death. It is. We're going to talk about a lot of people that are very directly affected by Pat's behavior in this. But when you look at something even far out like that, the butterfly effect of how it touches so many lives when you use cruelty in your words and in your actions. So yeah, many people consider Kent Pat's first victim. She taunted him. She also would pit her parents against him. Like if they were living in the same home, she would start a fight and then she'd go crying to her parents, even as an adult, and say that he had done something to her and they were always siding with her. And then, of course, she had delivered those horrible statements to him that put him in a position where his mental health was so bad that 
he ended up committing suicide. Yeah, it's horrible. And I know that all of our actions are just like, we're responsible for our own actions, of course, but there's a lot of signs here that Pat could take on some responsibility here. Yeah, but she, I doubt she does. Oh, absolutely. She didn't. She got what she wanted in the end, remember? She wanted to be the only child. And in 1966, she became one once more. By the late 1960s, Pat was getting also increasingly disinterested in her marriage. In 1969, Gil was back stateside, and he was trying to salvage the marriage as best he could. So one way that Pat thought that maybe he could make it up to her, which he had just been serving his country, it's not like he had abandoned her. She wanted him to buy her a mansion that they could not afford. And she wanted a piece of property. She basically wanted Tara. She wanted her own gone with the wind plantation situation. And he was basically working three jobs. He was still enlisted. So he still had his military duties and was active duty. But he was also working for a caterer and at JCPenney's to try to get this property and the type of house that she wanted put on the property. And it still wasn't enough for her. When he told her he could not continue living like this because he was only sleeping four hours a night and just working himself to the bone, she said, well, sure you can. You just have to try harder. (laughs) And this woman's not working at all, by the way. And their kids were like old enough now to be in school and not need constant care. No matter what Gil did, it wasn't enough. Susan on the Evil In-Laws show said that... She thought that her parents broke up eventually because her dad just didn't make enough money for her mother. Or at least that's how her mother thought about it. Oh, my God. Yeah. And she did leave Gil in one of the most shocking and kind of offensive ways I've ever heard. She chose to tell her husband of nearly 19 years that she was leaving him at their daughter's wedding. It gets worse. It gets worse. So Susan said in the Anne Roll book, my reception was a disaster. My mother chose my wedding day to announce to everyone that she was leaving my father. She had a restraining order against him and he had to leave at once. He was absolutely dumbfounded. He did not see it coming. Even 20 years after, I think he still wondered what he did wrong. He was there giving me away and then he was gone, banished. My mother had a new life planned and he didn't belong in it. Wow. To walk your daughter down the aisle and then minutes later be like, uh, here's a restraining order. I'm filing for divorce. Get the fuck out of our daughter's reception that he very likely paid for. Yeah, that's wild beyond belief. It's also (laughs) unbelievably attention-seeking and dramatic and taking the focus away from Susan, her daughter, on her wedding day. Yeah, but it's completely on par with everything. Yeah, very in line with behavior so far. It's also, I think that she did it for attention too because Susan was getting married obviously that day and then two days later, her daughter Debbie gave birth to her first grandchild. So it's like both of her daughters had something going on in their lives and she was even competitive with her own children. Yeah, that's wild. Wow. Well, Pat might have been a grandmother, but she did not look like it. And she didn't act like it either. She was only 33 years old and very hot to trot. (laughs) Younger than us. Younger than we were when we even had our first child. Yes. (laughs) It's insane. 
But that's, I told you, this whole family has their babies super young. Like Susan was at least in college, I think, when she got married. She was 18, but she had started college. And she was like the first woman in their family to graduate high school before having a baby. Wow. Because I think Debbie was 16 years old. Yeah, I was going to say, because Debbie wasn't the first, so. She wasn't the firstborn, yeah. So, yeah, so I guess it's just a long history. And they were very fertile, too, these women. That's what the book said. I mean, Anne Rule goes into, like, generations of, like, Pat's family to her, like, great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents. It's crazy. And they all had babies at, like, 15, so they were all, like, 30-year-old grandmas. Yeah, so you could have, like, six generations, and nobody is, like, really that decrepit. (laughs) It's crazy. It's, like, crazy when they see an actual grandma. (laughs) Yeah. But this is also back in the day where like women at 40 were like, well, I'm I'm old now, so it's time to look like a grandma. (laughs) But not Pat, not Pat. She wasn't going out that way. Now we have pictures of her when her family was younger. And she looks very 1950s housewife, the glasses, like kind of like winged glasses, and the more conservative, like Betty Cleaver look. Well, when she got divorced, it's the 1960s, baby. I think it was actually pushing up on 1970. So she was freeing herself. She was getting liberated. She got contact lenses. She started wearing like the tiny little mini skirts, like the go-go boots mini skirts of that time. Wow. The very like Austin Powers type mod look. She started wearing... Stuff that was very low cut, lots of cleavage. She had a tiny, cute little figure, tight clothes that looked like they were painted on. So there's a little bit of a scandal just how she was dressing in this southern town because she was in Georgia, outside of Atlanta. And then, to make the scandal worse, she started having a string of affairs with married men. (laughs) Just too many to list. (gasps) Oh, my God. Well, one notable affair partner was a politician who was a member of then-governor's Jimmy Carter's cabinet. So this guy made a lot of money. He was very politically connected. He was 58 years old to Pat's then 35. So she's 35 when she meets this guy. So he's a lot older. He obviously had been married for something like close to 40 years. He had grown children, likely close to Pat's age. And Pat's parents, because she's living with them, knew about this relationship, but they obviously did not approve. That doesn't seem like something the colonel would approve of. No, they were not into it. They refused to allow her to bring him to their house. They didn't want to meet him. Yeah, that's gross. You're a 58-year-old man. Like, you're going to your girlfriend's parents' house? He's also older than her parents. Yeah. Yeah. So they were not into it. So she would take this man to her daughter's apartment to conduct her affair, Susan's apartment. While Susan was home or not home? I have no idea. They just said that that's where the affair was conducted because obviously he had a wife at home. Why doesn't he get a hotel like a normal mister? Creep. (laughs) Like a normal creepy mister. I mean, I guess because he's politically connected, he couldn't have people seeing him getting a hotel room and walking in there with a strange woman. That's so gross. Yeah, I have no idea, but it's gross. It's gross anyway, and it's gross also to make your children a part of your adulterous lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah. So this went on for a little while, and eventually Pat wanted this guy to leave his wife and marry her. And we don't know exactly what she did. It never came out 
exactly how she tried to either blackmail him or push him into a situation where he had to choose her. But all we know is whatever she tried to do to force this guy to make a decision backfired because he dropped her like a rock. Yeah, I mean, forcing someone to do anything that they don't want to do is usually not a good way to start a relationship. (laughs) No. No, especially if it's leave your wife for me. (laughs) We've already gone down the wrong path here if the first thing you're trying to make your partner do is leave their existing legally married spouse. (laughs) Of 40 years. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. So at that point, she still wasn't giving up, though. So she had her friends. I think that she was always, like, smart enough to be one step removed from it, like, make harassing calls to his wife, to his home. He had to change his number. She was not giving up that easily. And then she decided, well... I need to get his attention, so I'm going to find some young, handsome, strapping buck to swan around town with because he's an old, gross man, and he'll be jealous if he sees me with this hot young guy. Okay. And so she set her sights on exactly somebody that would fit the description. And her daughters remember her being on the phone screaming to this guy, being like, well, if you won't marry me, I'm going to marry this other guy, Tom Allenson, and you'll see. And that's how Tom Allenson, the 30-year-old guy from the beginning of this episode, came into play. Wow. But Tom doesn't know that. He thinks this is a grand love story. In fact, the way Anne Rule writes it is great because she starts with their wedding and their relationship and like them against the world and they're so in love because that's really what Tom thought was going on. And only when you get to the middle of the book do you find out that This is what preceded their relationship. So Tom was from a family of means. His father was a politically connected lawyer named Walter Allenson. Technically, Tom is Walter Allenson III. I think Tom was his middle name. So there's a grandfather involved, Pa, who is the first Walter Allenson. Then there's his dad, Walter Allenson. And then there's Tom, who goes by Tom. Tom was in the process of divorcing his second wife when he fell into Pat's clutches. So there was some interest and there was definitely some hanky-panky that preceded his divorce. However, we can't blame the divorce and the problems in Tom's marriage completely on Pat. Yeah, no, I, no. Tom's father, Walter, did not approve of him getting divorced. He did not want him to be divorced. So. When Tom's wife eventually kicked him out, Walter said, you can't stay with me. You're not coming back here. You need to learn how to work it out with your wife. And Tom was like, I can't work it out with her. So I don't know what I'm going to do. And he ended up staying at Pat's house. Now, Pat was still living with her parents. She was still living on the plot of land that her poor ex-husband had slaved to buy. And they had horses. So they kept Morgan horses there. And he would come by because he was a Purina salesman, which apparently Purina also does horse feed, which I did not know about, or at least it did in the 70s. And so he would sell them horse feed and he was also a blacksmith. So he'd shoe their horses as well. Okay, cool. And so Pat knew of him, obviously. And she kind of wrote like this kind of steamy description about Pat and Tom meeting. And Rule did or Pat did? And Rule. Okay. Tom had been a friend to Pat's family, nothing more, but any woman who watched him at work, naked to the waist, 
his muscular torso glistening with sweat, would have noticed him. Wow, Anne. Anne Rilke is spicy. It's an erotic thriller now. <laughs> erotic true crime thriller. <laughs> I love the way she writes. Shooing the Radcliffe's prize Morgan horses, he lifted their hooves in his hand as easily as if they were lamb's feet. Don't settle when it comes to your pup's health. Make the switch to fresh food made with real ingredients and backed by science. That's Nom Nom. Andy, have you seen lately how big Artie is getting? She is huge. And with that black and orange Bernese Mountain Dog coat, it's like she's made for a spooky season. <laughs> yes, she is 100% spooky season colors. And you know that we love spooky season around here. Dogs are truly a part of the family. And that's why we are so excited to tell you about today's distinctly not spooky sponsor, Nom Nom. Nom Nom delivers fresh dog food with every portion personalized to your dog's needs, so you can bring out their best. Nom Nom's made with real, whole food you can see and recognize without any additives or fillers that contribute to bloating and low energy. That's because Nom Nom uses the latest science and insights to make real, good food for dogs. Their nutrient-packed recipes are crafted by board-certified veterinary nutritionists, made fresh and shipped free to your door. Nom Nom's already delivered over 40 million meals to good dogs like yours, inspiring millions of clean bowls and tail wags. Nom Nom's ingredients are cooked individually and then mixed because science tells us that every protein, carb, and veggie has different cook times and methods. This gives your dog efficient energy and packs in the vitamins and minerals they need truly getting the most out of every bite. For a big breed dog that can have tummy issues, it's been such an amazing resource to have Nom Nom to help our girl have the best diet and live her best life. Plus, Nom Nom comes with a money-back guarantee. If your dog's tail isn't wagging within 30 days, Nom Nom will refund your first order. No fillers, no nonsense, just Nom Nom. Go right now for 50% off your no-risk two-week trial at trynom.com slash lovemurder. Spelled trynom.com slash lovemurder for 50% off. Trynom.com slash lovemurder. Jesse, did you know that we are already stocking up for the holidays at Ririku? Eee, that makes me so happy. It is truly the most wonderful time of the year. It really is wonderful, especially for me. Many of the lovers listening might not know that having a store for cool vintage finds and goods from amazing and lesser-known creators was always a huge dream of mine. And it was a dream that got a whole lot more real when I found Shopify. Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a small business entrepreneur like Andy or part of a huge enterprise, Shopify is the only tool you need to start, run, and grow your business without getting on the struggle bus. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. So whether you're selling satin sheets from Shopify's in-person POS system or offering organic olive oil on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, or of course, cool vintage finds like moi, Shopify has you covered. And I am so excited to bring all of the tips and tricks I've learned from using this incredible platform over to the Love Murder store as well. Andy, did you know that Shopify actually powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States? We're truly in good company. And Shopify is a global force powering Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, as well as millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across over 170 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. 
There's also amazing forums where you can chat with other people who are taking advantage and using the e-commerce platform of Shopify and you can chat. It's almost like a Reddit forum where you can ask others questions. It's amazing. This is Possibility powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lovemurder, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lovemurder to take your business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash lovemurder. So when Tom had nowhere to go, apparently he was speaking to Pat about it on one of these trips over to her farm. And she said, well, of course, you could stay here, Tom. And he fell right into the Venus flytrap. Wow. Mm-hmm. Her parents said Tom's sleeping on the couch, but one thing led to another and somehow he got into her bed. Yeah, I'd say that was pretty easy. Yeah. And then eventually it became more than just sex and maybe more than just making the old politician jealous. But somehow, some way, this couple seemed to get very serious about each other, despite the fact that Pat was older than Tom by almost seven years and she was already a grandmother two or three times over and his kids were very small at this point. He had a daughter and a son that were small. So Pat might have been genuinely interested in the handsome soon-to-be divorcee, or she might have been interested in his daddy's money. Tom was the only child of Walter and Carolyn Allenson, and she knew that Tom's old man was quite wealthy indeed. She began to put the works in motion very early on to become Tom's third wife before he was even legally divorced, of course. But she hadn't counted on one gigantic problem, which was that Tom himself did not make very much money at all. And he was not getting any money from his father because the two men did not get along at all. And he didn't tell her this? I don't know how honest he was about the situation, but it was soon to become abundantly clear. Yeah. There was no mistaking it. I think that Pat thought he's the only child, he's the only heir, he's the son. Even if they don't get along, at some point, he'll die and he'll inherit. It's the long game. It's the long game. <laughs> yes. Or the short game, depending on how you want to hurry that death along yeah. if you're a sociopath. So Tom's parents had not wanted to have children. And they had had him begrudgingly after Tom's mother, Carolyn, got pregnant at 19 years old. And that was it. They took precautions after Tom was born. Both parents were very dedicated to their careers. Walter was an attorney who was, at the time that Pat comes into their lives, was running for a judgeship. And Carolyn was a devoted and dedicated nurse. They, like I said, did not have any other children. And Tom grew up feeling like he could never please his father. Yeah, I mean, that's sad. Yeah. He felt very unwanted. Walter Allenson was a very rigid man. This guy only had one other sister. His name was Joan. And he was estranged from her as well because they had gotten into an argument about some property that she had wanted to purchase from their parents. And Walter had purchased it instead or was even maybe given it. That's kind of a dick move. Yeah, she'd already tried to make a stake in it. So they were estranged for that reason, but this is definitely a guy who chooses 
whatever his belief system is or his way over other people. So instead of saying like, well, let's find a way to split this certain property or let's work together because we're all a family. He's like, well, I'll just cut you out of my life. And it's very his way or the highway. He's one of those people that you don't like what I'm saying. I'll just cut you off. And I don't care. I don't care who you are. We all know people like that. Yes, we do. Not willing to compromise. So Tom would later say, that's why I grew up being such a sucker for love. I never had any. I can never remember even once hearing my parents say, I love you. Oh, my God. Yeah. Or feeling them even put their arms around me. Isn't that terrible? Poor baby. They showed that they cared about me by giving me a good education. They fed me and they took care of me, but that was their form of love. I understood that, although I found out later in life that I wasn't exactly planned when I came along. I wasn't exactly a blessing, but I was the kind of kid that thrived off of love. I needed to be told. I needed to be shown. Well, as one who is starved for love does occasionally, Tom married his first very serious girlfriend, a girl who was named Judy, who he met while playing football at University of Georgia. So his father had wanted him to wait until after he had gotten a degree to get married, but he refused. And this was when Walter Allenson ended up cutting off his son for the first time because he had gone against his wishes. And it seems like this woman, Judy, had enjoyed going out to dinner and having nice things. And he had been able to afford that when he was doing what his dad wanted him to do and was using that money. And now he didn't even have money to pay his tuition. He was trying to work just to make sure he could stay in school. And he said that he believes that the marriage started to fail because his first wife was the type of woman that when she didn't get what she wanted, she would withhold affection and sex. Oh my God. And that's like all he wants is affection and love. (laughs) Yeah. So I think this withholding of affection, especially I would imagine would be very triggering emotionally for him. He was also still very young at this point. So instead of doing the healthy thing, which is like working on himself and trying to work on the marriage, (laughs) instead... He started having an affair with his wife's best friend. Messy. We were in your corner, buddy, until you got here. So this was a woman named Carolyn. And since his mother was named Carolyn, his mother now became Big Carolyn. And his new affair partner was Little Carolyn. And he would later say about Carolyn, she gave me attention and I wasn't getting that in my marriage. Carolyn, by the way, was also married to a man 15 years older than her. So they're both cheating on their spouses and Carolyn is doing one worse because this is her best friend's husband. And I mean, Tom is too, because that's his wife's best friend. Gross. Really gross. He said, my wife started withholding sex and Carolyn was free with it. We started going to the Moose Club together and that was out of character for me. I didn't drink, never have. Tom said Carolyn enjoyed dancing and drinking and it did not concern him in the beginning. Two divorce suits would be filed when Tom's wife and Carolyn's husband discovered the illicit romance. Tom had yet to distinguish between love and sex. He believed at this point that he had finally found what he was looking for and that Carolyn would make a good wife as soon as their divorces were final. But that did not happen. It's so funny. Like you think she's going to make a good wife even though she cheated on her husband with you. 
I mean, huge love murder red flag is if you meet your partner while they are cheating on another partner, this is not a meet cute. You lose them how you get them. It's just not a good basis to start a relationship or marriage upon. So this relationship was bad. They got married and they ended up having kids, but it sounded like right away there were problems in the relationship and they were potentially going to divorce until they found out that Carolyn was pregnant with their first child. And Tom's family, once again, was not super psyched about this relationship, but that kind of changed when they had their first baby in 1970. Interesting. Um, I wouldn't think that that would affect them considering they didn't really want to have a kid in the first place. I think that... Sometimes I think we've talked about this too. People who weren't really adept at being parents the first time around can occasionally become loving grandparents many decades later. Well, it's more aligned with when people are having babies now. Yeah, (laughs) that's true. Yeah, emotionally ready and having the resources to have these kids. It might also have been that the father is running for a judgeship, not at this point, but he is aiming in that direction already. And he's a well-respected attorney. Yeah. So he might have also wanted to convey a family look. Yes. It did seem like he cared about his grandchildren, however, but there was probably also a motivation of how it's perceived in this Southern town as well. So they had a baby in 1970 and a little baby boy, and then they had a little girl in 1972. According to Tom, however, little Carolyn, his wife, never got over her hard partying ways. So she was drunk a lot of the time. He would come home and she didn't know where the kids were. And these are babies. She would leave the kids alone in the house. And it was getting... Very, very dangerous even because she was drunk one time and he came home and found that the kids were in a horrible state. So he took them. He put a baby in each arm to pile them in the car and go to his parents' house. And she allegedly got a gun and shot at him with their children in his arms. Oh, my God. So this was messy, messy, messy and very bad. And even though these are allegations, later on in the story, it seems like maybe he wasn't wrong. This wasn't just a, like an accusations flying, exaggerating. Trying to get the kids away from her, yeah. Yes, like lies brought up in a custody battle. I think that this may have been closer to the truth. She had also wrecked his parents' car at one point. It just sounds like she was not ready to be a parent. So he did officially leave her in September of 1973, and he went to his parents' house, but... To his surprise, his father would not help him. He said, you can't stay here. I'm not going to help you get a divorce, even though he was an attorney. He said, you got divorced already. And that was fine because you didn't have kids in the picture. But this is going to look really bad for my campaign if you get divorced again. (laughs) So you got to go figure it out. He said that you don't do that to children and that you need to man up and fix your wife. Essentially, you selected her as your wife. You made her the mother of your children. You don't get to just walk away when clearly she's got some issues. You need to fix her, fix your marriage, and stay in the picture, and I'm not going to let you run away. Now, to some extent, obviously, people should work on their marriages. Not to the extent that your children are in danger and everyone's lives are endangered. Yeah, and your partner's shooting at you. Yes, that's not a time that you need to just... Go fix her. Go fix her, yes. not fix her upper. Yeah. So... 
at that point, Tom said, well, screw you then. I'm going to do it anyway. He had to go to another attorney. I'm going to get a divorce from her. And Walter said, well, then screw you, son. I'm going to side with Carolyn, little Carolyn. I'm going to bring her and your grandkids in and I'll support them. And he even went to a custody hearing and spoke out against his son and for his daughter-in-law. Wow. I don't know if I like Walter. Walter is not an exceptionally likable man. He is not. I have to be quite honest with you guys about this. He is not an exceptionally likable man. It sounds like he did not raise his son with much love. He also was apparently a dick to a lot of people in the town. He was like a jerk lawyer to be on the other side of. Like some man had threatened him at some point with a gun. Wow. For something that had happened legally. So Tom was an extremely vulnerable position. I mean, just ripe for the picking when he met, really met Pat, because he had known of her for a while. But when they started getting close, I mean, it did not take much more than some affection and love and a sweet Southern voice calling him Suge. How old are the kiddos? They were born in 70 and 72. So they're like one in three. Shit. So did she help with them? No. Okay. Pat wasn't helping anybody but herself. And so he was completely dazzled by her. She was gorgeous. She was sexually confident. And she was just filling up his love cup. She was giving him words of affirmation, physical touch. She's like doing all the things, giving him presents. She's like, I will hit every fucking love language. (laughs) And I really do think that this just goes to show you that if you don't show your children love, if you as a parent do not love your child and show them affection and make them feel that they are unconditionally loved, then they're going to spend the rest of their life looking for the love they didn't receive from you. And it might be not the source that you would like. It might not be somebody that has their best intentions at heart because they're going to just take it from anybody at that point. Absolutely. Like I said, Walter's already siding with Carolyn. And this was all going on as Tom is falling in love with Pat. And when Walter found out about his son's new relationship, he blew another gasket. This was just to Walter, another sign of his son being an absolute freaking idiot in his mind. He did contact Tom and said, come to my office. I got to talk to you. And he told his son that everyone in town knew that Pat was Nothing but a dirty harlot. I'm sure he used even worse words than that. Who would sleep with anyone with a horse and a trailer, as he put it. And now this is not a good look. The slut shaming, obviously not a good look for Walter. But I do think it's possible because Walter is in political circles that he might have known about the politician that Pat was having the affair with. Yep. And given that that dude had been 58, 59 years old. And Walter and big Carolyn at this time were 51 years themselves. I think it would be a bit jarring if you knew about this woman who was the mistress of this politician who's older than you, all of a sudden is showing up on your son's arm, who's your child. Because I feel like that's probably some like locker room talk that that politician would have told other dudes, but not women, you know? Absolutely. I just wonder if there's something there because I don't think he was pulling this stuff out of nowhere. So when Pat and Tom got married in their fantastic plantation costume party bonanza. God, that should be illegal. It should. 
one day, by the way, it was one day after his divorce went through, you can bet that Tom's parents were not present. Weren't they taking care of little Carolyn and the kids? (laughs) Probably. But luckily for Tom, he did have some very sweet grandparents who were like parents to him. They went by Pa and Nona, and they were Walter's parents. So they were the first, Walter the first. They were very upset at how their son had turned out, that he was estranged from his sister. He's now estranged from his son. It was just his personality, it seemed like. It didn't seem like it was something to do with how they had raised him, or at least they didn't think so. But Nona had had a stroke, and she needed to be in a wheelchair. She had a very hard time speaking. So people really close to her could usually understand, but people who were not intimately familiar with her on a day-to-day basis were not able to understand her speech because of the stroke. And Pa was getting up there in the years as well. So this relationship was very important to Tom because they had been the only ones in his life who had really treated him with any sort of love and care. And so Pa and Nona thankfully did attend the wedding and they did seem to approve of Tom's marriage to Pat because Pat really did put on a good show. She was very charismatic with them. And they thought that she was a very nice woman who was going to be there and give Tom the love he had so craved. And they also helped Tom and Pat buy her new dream property because I think that her parents had ended up buying out the property or moving at some point to another farm that was theirs. That was theirs and not hers. And she had found this beautiful farm that was going to auction around the time that she was angling to marry Tom. It was like right before they got married, they had closed on it. And this place was in Zebulon, Georgia. And it was what she felt like was going to be her personal terra. There were 50, think some acres of pecan groves and orchards and rose gardens. There's a beautiful brick house on the property. There was room for the horses that they both loved. But of course, Tom doesn't have the money for this. She certainly doesn't have the money for this. So they ended up turning to his grandparents and Pat's parents. And between... Essentially, he could afford the mortgage payments with his salary, but they could not afford the down payment. So it seems like Nona and Pa gave Tom the money with the plan that he would eventually pay them back in some small portion. And eventually they would build a small house on the property so that Pat and Tom could take care of them as they were aging. So that was kind of the deal. And on The Colonel and Marguerite's side, they gave the new couple part of the down payment with one request that Pat and Tom would name the property Kentwood Morgan Farm in honor of Pat's deceased brother, Kent. Did she do it? She did it begrudgingly because it was the only way they were going to give her the money. Yeah, she cares more about that than, okay. She wanted to name it like Tara or Rosewood or something like that she thought was pretty. And they were like, now if you get this money, we're going to honor the brother that you helped put in the grave. Yeah, I am proud of them for doing that. Putting their foot down for once with her. So Pat's got the money. She's got the man. She's got the farm. But Kelsey Pries, Pat is still not happy. Oh my God, what? (laughs) She could not stand that his parents were snubbing her and she felt like snubbing her parents as well. Furthermore, when Tom lost his job at Purina due to some ethics violation because of his 
nasty divorce and then getting married the next day, she felt certain that it was because his father had intervened, which is entirely in line with Walter's behavior. He could be taking away his son's opportunities to make him forced to come back to Walter to get money and then be like, well, if you don't make the decisions I want you to make, you don't get any money. We don't have any proof that Walter did this, but it wouldn't be crazy that he might have. I'd say with the track record of what you've told me, no. So when the marriage was only one month old and Tom was struggling to find a new job, especially being concerned that his connected father might have told other employers not to hire him, Pat began demanding that Tom force a way to get his parents to accept her, to love her, to accept her into the family, and to help them. She was saying, it's your parents. It's your responsibility. You've got to make good. I don't know what you did in the past to screw up this relationship, but you have to fix it. Okay. She said that his parents were insulting and embarrassing her. She said that it was embarrassing her family, the, you know, the honorable colonel, and that if he was a real man, he would do something about it. Oh, no. So an angry Pat began to retreat from a bewildered Tom. It wasn't quite as much as giving him the cold shoulder, but people around them noticed that she was avoiding hanging out with him one-on-one. She was spending a lot of time with her parents, with her daughters, and not spending time with her new husband only a month into the relationship. Yikes. Meanwhile, Walter called Marguerite. That's Tom's dad called Pat's mom who was working as a receptionist at a dental office and told her that he was sure that Tom was sneaking into his old house and putting formaldehyde in the children's milk. He basically said to Marguerite, Pat's mom, I don't have any sway over my son anymore and I don't even want to talk to him. Now that he's married to your daughter, it's your problem. So can you please talk to my former son and tell him to stop poisoning his children's milk? And Marguerite was like, excuse me, what? And he claimed that not only was Tom not paying support, which was a lie, Tom was paying support, that Tom was going so far as to go into his old house and poison his children's milk because that was coming from the ex-wife. Little Carolyn. Little Carolyn is telling Big Carolyn and Walter that Tom was sneaking in and doing horrible things and trying to hurt her and the children. At least this is what Walter believes. This is where he's coming from. He also told Marguerite that he believed his son was trying to sabotage him. He had put sugar in his gas tank, he claimed. He also further alleged that Tom had stolen three guns from his house. But he told Marguerite to tell Tom not to bring the guns back, to take them to the police station so they could return them to him or mail them back. Because he said, if Tom steps foot on my property, I will shoot him dead. With what guns, though? I guess he had more. He has a whole arsenal. Wow. Yes. And so Marguerite was trying to smooth this over for her daughter. She's a very respectable lady. Her husband's very well respected in the community as well. And also, Walt, you're coming off a little crazy. You're coming off a little crazy. Yes. She said, we're a lovely family. We want to build a family with you. I know Tom wouldn't do any of those things. That's not like him. And I think you need to extend a little benefit of the doubt for your child. That's your son you're talking about. And he said, he's no son of mine. He's all but dead to me. I don't have a son. If he's all but dead to you, then why is he, why are you calling and like having like a full on bitch fest about him to your his new mother-in-law? Well, he 
must have felt that somehow Tom was a threat to his grandchildren. Yeah. If he was calling, that's the only reason I can think. Yeah, because it's like if he's all but dead to you, like you would literally just like not even be in touch with him. It seems like there's something else going on. Yeah. And it should be said that there was no way that Tom was truly poisoning those children, obviously. No. But unfortunately, even though he loved those children, he really wasn't having much to do with them. And this was at Pat's request. She did not want to fight for custody for his kids. And I don't know if he loved them enough to fight his new wife to tell her you're taking in my kids no matter what. Well, he would have had to fight two wives. Yes, he would have had to fight to get the custody. And then his new wife didn't want the kids. So he's like, well, let her have them, I guess. But I also think that that's a huge red flag is if you have children and the person you're marrying wants no business helping to raise them or cultivate a parenting environment. It's not a good sign. I mean, that should be a deal breaker if you have children, like straight up. But he needs love. He just wants somebody to fill his love cup all the way up to the top. Tippy, tippy top. There's no say when. It just goes and goes and goes. So on June 28th, 1974, roughly a month and a half after Pat and Tom had gotten married, she claimed that something horrible happened. She was mowing the perimeter of their property. She's on one of those little ride mowers. And she was near a fence that goes out to the road. And she saw from a distance that there was a car parked over by the road and she started driving the lawnmower over there to see if it was a neighbor or somebody she knew. And then she recognized it as her father-in-law's car. And she claimed that Walter Allenson was touching himself. He was exposing himself to her in maybe a masturbatory way. A masturbatory? Didn't sound like it, it was just a flashing. I think it was like flashing and action is how it seemed like it was described. Wanking. Yes, he's wanking. <laughs> to break it down so succinctly. Thank you, Andy. So she went home and she was hysterical. She called her son, who was an older teenager at this point, Ronnie, and told him to get home. She called her husband. She said, oh my gosh, your father just did this horrible thing. At that point, he wanted to call the police, of course. And she's like, who's going to believe me? It's your father who is running for a judgeship or it's me. I think that they did make some sort of like cursory, like filed some sort of complaint, but it wasn't something that they were going to pursue because she didn't really necessarily want to pursue it and make it a whole. It was just to he have said, it she on said. record, like in case. Just to have yeah. it on record. Exactly. So that had happened on June 28th. Only one day later on June 29th, now, Carolyn and Walter did not know about these allegations because they were not brought to them because they had decided they weren't going to officially go forward with filing charges. They were driving. They were going to, they had a lake house at Lake Lanier and they were driving there. And when they approached the home, they were sniper shot at in their car. Um... Yep. And so these snipers, which later the police would find out that there was like, a candy wrapper or soda can or something over this hill. It looked like they had been waiting specifically for the Allensons because they had been there for quite some time, clearly. Okay. There were one or two shooters. They don't know. It just, the bullets started flying. It shot out one of their windows and it spiderwebbed their windshield. 
but they somehow managed to get out alive and without injury. Wow. Andy, once again this week, I get to share some of the results of my endless quest for better rest and more energy. Oh, is that so? (laughs) Yes, you know how crazy difficult it can be for me to get to sleep. I have always been a night owl, but with school schedules and work schedules and research and trying to craft all these crazy episodes for y'all, I just do not have the option of staying up way too late and being groggy in the morning. And of course, the longer it takes me to fall asleep, the more it affects my next day. Well, one of the most effective tools I found in my personal journey, which also helps with my muscle recovery, is magnesium breakthrough. Did you know that over 75% of the population is magnesium deficient? And what most people don't know is that even if they're taking magnesium supplement, they're still deficient because they're not getting all seven forms. That's right. I said seven. Magnesium Breakthrough is the ultimate way to give your body all seven forms in one supplement. Yes. And in addition to experiencing relaxed sleep, Magnesium Breakthrough also helps improve digestion, supports muscle recovery, and supports healthy bone density. I actually was on a very serious prescription drug called Accutane, and it can cause a lot of muscle soreness. So I actually started taking Magnesium Breakthrough when I was on that other medication because I needed so much help in my strength training endeavors to have that muscle recovery. And I have to say it was truly a blessing. Yeah. I mean, there's really nothing like getting better sleep to help you feel grounded and relaxed during the next day. For an exclusive offer for Love Murder listeners, go to magbreakthrough.com slash lovemurder and use code lovemurder10 during checkout to save 10%. Again, that's magbreakthrough.com slash lovemurder and code lovemurder10. Thanks to Magnesium Breakthrough for supporting the show. So the police were absolutely called and Walter reported that though he had not actually visually seen the shooter, he believed that it was his son who he also said stole guns from him. So he's like, he's got my guns. Now he's using them against me. I know it's him. I didn't see him, but I know it's him. Now, on the day of the shooting, Tom and Pat had been at a horse show in another county. So it does actually seem highly unlikely that this was Tom and Pat or Tom or Pat. However, I think it was her parents alibying them. So I'm not sure if there was other people that weren't related to Pat who also alibied them. So no one else saw them. Well, I don't know. Her parents said, yes, I was at this show with her as well. And I think that was good enough for the police at that point. I don't know if they went as far as to find everyone else out at the horse show and interview them, but they did obviously bring them in for questioning because he was the number one suspect. And at that point, they were like, well, we didn't want to press charges before, but yesterday we called because he exposed himself to my wife and now we want to press charges. So at this point, they're both pointing the finger at the other one. Like they're saying, he's a pervert. He tried to kill us. He tried to kill his own parents. And it is getting very, very ugly. On July 3rd, 1974, Pat had to go to the doctor. Now, Pat has chronic health problems. This was something that happened when she was younger. She had um, some sort of blood clot and she had to be hospitalized. And she discovered that being in the hospital is a great way to get attention. Oh, yeah. So she is constantly either making herself sick somehow or pretending to be sick. She is a huge malingerer. And anytime she's in trouble, she can just get very faint. 
Oh. And be so delicate yeah. that she can't answer to her crimes. So she was having one of her many myriad health problems, which Anne Rule goes into length of these various things she faked having. And she was going to the doctor. Now, it did seem that she had really broken her collarbone after their wedding. So it might have had something to continue to do with that. But she was going to the doctor and she had around that point, they had been planning to ride their horses in the July 4th parade that was the next day. And basically, Tom was like, I don't really want to do that because I feel like we're a sitting duck in case my dad goes crazy and wants to shoot us. Yeah. Because we're going to be sitting up there in the parade. And she was like, don't be silly. And also, you need to fix this. It's escalated. You need to go over there when your dad's not home and talk to your mom. And his parents were very much creatures of a habit. So they both worked mornings and then they would have lunch together. And then usually his mom would get off early from her nursing position and be home much earlier than Walter. So... In general, I think the plan was that maybe he was going to go over to his parents' house that afternoon while Pat was at the doctor and see if he could talk to his mom and get anywhere with her because she had always loved her son, but she was very submissive of Walter and followed his lead to the T. Yeah. But he thought maybe if he got her alone, things would be different. So we know for sure that there had been some pressure on Tom to try to reconcile and maybe go over there that day. But we do not know for sure if and when Tom actually did go to his parents' house at all. In fact, no one would know truly what happened at the Allensons' house on July 3rd, 1974, at least not for almost 20 years. But what occurred would leave two people dead and one family irrevocably broken. So here is what we know for sure about that day. That day, Walter left his office to purchase a rifle and a box of ammunition. He showed both to his secretary when he had returned to the office at 3 p.m. Big Carolyn left work at 4 p.m. to go home. And Walter was supposed to be at his office until 6 p.m. He had meetings that he ended up canceling. Okay. Tom allegedly dropped Pat off for the doctors at 3.30 p.m. At 5.30 p.m., a woman who did not give her name called Walter's office and told his secretary the following. She said, you'd better tell Mr. Allenson to get home as fast as he can. His son is headed over there to cause trouble. Uh-oh. So Walter canceled the rest of his appointments and he rushed home. When he arrived, Big Carolyn told him that the power was out. It seems like somebody had cut a power line or done something so that their power was out. Specifically, they also discovered that their phone line had been cut. Oh, gosh. Walter went in the home and he said that he believed a suitcase and a shotgun had also been stolen from the home. So Walter called the police from a neighbor's house and a sergeant came out to the Allensons' place. He was outside the door, and he said, do you want me to come in and search for the person? Is he still in your home? And he said that he was going to handle it himself. He said, I don't think he's here, but if he is, and he, like, gestured to his gun, he said, I'll handle it myself. Okay. Is that legal? <laughs> he said, just so you know, you should be looking for my son. He's like, I mostly just wanted you to come on down here to confirm that somebody had cut this telephone line, and this was not an accident. And the sergeant at that point said he did believe that somebody had very purposely cut this phone line. 
And at that point, he said, are you sure? Do you need me to do anything else other than file this report? He said, nope, I got it covered. I've got my gun. I'm good. (sighs) Yep. (laughs) The sergeant left. At some point, Tom's ex-wife and the children arrived. And they were all talking about what was going on with the house. And his ex said that they had seen Pat's Jeep driving in the area. So they saw Pat, they believed, in the area as well. So now they're all theorizing that obviously this has something to do with Tom and Pat. While they were discussing this, Walter thought that he heard something from the basement and that he's thinking, is Tom still down there? Was he hiding in the basement? He got caught in the house and he ran down there. So he went downstairs and little Carolyn later said that she heard yelling men's voices, but she couldn't be sure if it was just Walter yelling or maybe it was Tom and Walter yelling or two men, not even Tom, but another man and Walter yelling. There was men's voice yelling. And then there was some gunshots fired. And then Walter came back upstairs and he kind of, he didn't come all the way back upstairs. He was on the staircase and he yelled, get the kids out of the house. I have him cornered in a cubby hole. So the two women were rushing to get the children out of the house. And then Walter yelled up to his wife, Big Carolyn, mother, bring the new gun. Why do you call her mother? It must be just like a Southern thing because he was calling her mother and she was calling him daddy. Ew. Which I do sometimes call Nathaniel daddy in front of the kids just so they know who I'm talking to. Yeah, but that's like they're like grown humans and he's like referencing a gun. So he yells up to her to bring the new gun, the one he had just bought. And little Carolyn was screaming at big Carolyn. Don't go down there. It's too dangerous. Don't you go down there with that gun. And big Carolyn's like, just get the kids out of the house. I'm going down there to give him this gun. So little Carolyn goes out of the, the house and big Carolyn dutifully took the 45 caliber rifle down to the basement. Shots rang out and... Nobody comes out of the house. So there's a bunch of shots that happen and little Carolyn runs to the neighbors and again calls the police. It had been less than an hour since the sergeant had been out there and now he's turning around. He's going straight back. I mean, he shouldn't have left, to be honest. He like, shouldn't have left in the first kind of place. wild. Like you just like, wow, wow, West vibe. I do not know this guy's relationship with the town or if he's like, I got this covered. It's country justice. I have no idea what's going on here. But he had left. So he comes back and he has backup with him. And when they arrive, they start going down the steps, which, of course, it smells like gun smoke down there. And they find one person shot dead on the basement stairs right away. It was Carolyn Allenson. Mama. It's Mama. She was sitting on the bottom of the steps and she was still wearing her nurse's uniform. And there was a very clear, bloody shot right to the center of her chest. So the next thing he noticed was that there was blood everywhere. And then he thinks nobody saw anyone come out of this house. The gunman could still be in this basement. So they got the heck out of there and surrounded the perimeter. And they brought in some tear gas because they were going to try to smoke out whoever was the assailant here. Yeah. And they did that, but nobody came out of the basement. Yeah, because they're dead. They're dead. So as soon as they're able to mostly clear the tear gas out of the basement, they go back down to look at the crime scene. 
and they eventually found the second victim, and it was Walter Allenson. Okay. So Walter and Carolyn, both of Tom's parents, are dead. Walter had shots to his face, neck, and torso. They believed the blood that was all over the basement was likely his. Big Carolyn had only been shot the one time. The gunman or gunmen had clearly fled somehow. Somehow they had gotten out of this basement without anyone seeing them. Crazy. It did appear that the bullets had been flying from more than one angle. So the police could not completely discount that maybe there had been more than one shooter. It also wasn't entirely clear if like Walter and Carolyn had maybe accidentally shot each other. It looks like the gun that Carolyn was still holding had fired at least one shot. So maybe she accidentally shot her husband, but he had been shot more than once. So somebody else had shot him. It's unclear. So then it seems like the gunman shot Carolyn, but they don't know if there was more than one person down there with them. So the police immediately suspected Tom because they've already had these reports filed. The guy had just been out there 45 minutes before when he said, it's my son. Their feud was very well documented. And multiple people had overheard both father and son threaten the other's lives. Yes. Yeah. It goes both ways here. And a neighbor in the area claimed to have also seen a very tall man, which Tom is like 6'4", I think, 6'4", 6'5", or something. He's extremely tall. They saw a tall man fitting Tom's description, fleeing the scene to the point where they thought it was Tom and said like, hey, Tom. And when the guy kept going, they were like, oh, I guess I was wrong. But then later they thought, oh, I wasn't wrong. He just was fleeing a crime scene. They eventually did track Tom down. He was at home. He had recently showered. He was with his grandfather who had come to give him the bad news. And he agreed to cooperate with the police. He denied shooting his parents. He seemed a little in shock. He had been informed by his grandfather what had happened, but he seemed suitably enough in shock. But he and Pat had slightly different alibis about why they had split up, what they had been fighting about, because they said that they had gotten into a fight and then he had hitchhiked home for some reason. And she couldn't really say why she was in the area. Like she had a doctor's appointment, but that was at 3.30. So why was she still in the area later on? It was just very unclear what was going on because they found Pat kind of just driving around first. And she said she didn't know where her husband was. So it was just very strange. And their alibis were just not coming together. So they were deeply suspicious of both Tom and Pat. So there's no real alibi here. And for what it is worth, neither he nor Pat had any gun residue on their hands. But it was also clear that Tom had just taken a shower. Would that wash off? I think it depends on the test. And I do not think that these tests, this was like a paraffin test. I don't think it was as as advanced as the gun powder residue testing we have these days where somebody can wash their hands and they'll still find it. It is entirely likely that he could have scrubbed his hands and it it might not have shown off. Yeah. Now, his ex, Carolyn, had already given her statement about everything that we already talked about. But then all of a sudden, two days later, she goes back and says, oh, I forgot to tell you guys something. That... When Big Carolyn went down to the basement and before the shooting started, she said, Tommy, 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 don't hurt daddy. Just a little something. Now, if this is true, of course, it's a huge indication of Tom's guilt, but it's slightly sus because she kept this out of her initial report, which you would not forget, I don't think. And she really has an ax to grind with her ex. But in any case, they're thinking we can use this against him. That's something. Even if she, like, even though a defense attorney will 
bring up how convenient it was for her to remember it. The prosecution can still say she was in a period of shock. It came to her later. So yeah, it's looking very bad for Tom. Furthermore, the police discovered that Walter had completely disinherited Tom. He was completely written out of the will. His money would go to Tom's children in a trust for when they got older. So the motive potentially was that Walter had disinherited his son and that had driven Tom into a rage and they already didn't like each other. Yeah. And that happened so long ago, multiple times too, the disinherited. Yes. That he had been cut off multiple times. Yeah. So it seems like something else would have lit a fire under his ass to do this. Well, that's what they said. So Tom did not seem surprised at all. He's like, of course, of course I wasn't in the will. I knew I wasn't in the will. To his point, he's like, why the hell would I kill him if I'm not going to get anything from it? Because I knew I wasn't in the will. Yep, exactly. Pat, however, did seem a little surprised that he wasn't in the will. She would later say that she did not think that the Allensons would truly disinherit their only child. She thought at the end of the day, he was still their only kid. And who else are they going to give it to? The grandchildren. (laughs) Yeah. So literally, she was Pikachu face about this development. Also, he's not going to get the money if turns out that he killed his parents either, honey. So she was shook. They could have probably used this money, too, because unsurprisingly, Tom was arrested and charged with his parents murder. Now, I'm going to breeze through this trial, guys, because there is just so much still left of this episode. Just even look down at the time that's left in this freaking episode, and you shall see why I have to go quickly through this trial. I'm excited for a quick trial. Let's hear it. (laughs) Yes. On October 14th, 1974, Tom went on trial with his wife of only five months. They've only been married for five months when he went on trial, and his grandparents supporting him. Pat was a big problem at this trial. She refused to allow Tom to speak to his own defense attorney without her at all. She had to be present for every single meeting. And Tom wouldn't talk to his defense attorney. If she wasn't there, he would say, we're going to wait until Pat gets here because she told me so. Because Pat had convinced him that she was the only one with his best interest at heart and that even the attorneys were going to be against him. So she had to protect him. She had forced Tom to stick to a narrative that said, we weren't there. We never were there. He was never on the premises. That didn't happen. And the defense attorney had said, look, it's looking like you were down there because I guess some of his blood was down there, but they were, his defense attorney could argue that they were all the same type blood and it wasn't that granular at the time. They couldn't tell like whose blood was whose. There was like some reasons why they were trying to say that Tom was down there. And he's like, is there more to the story? Is there like a self-defense thing going on here? Is there some argument that rang out, something that will make sense of this? And he was like, nope, we just weren't there. But the defense attorney knew that there was more to the story and he just could not get Tom alone to really get the full story because Pat kept shutting it down. So they had to go to court with the whole, I wasn't even there. I know my alibi is shit, but I really wasn't there defense. And it did not help either that Pat was making a huge spectacle of herself at the trial. She was speaking back to the prosecutor and the judge. She was crying loudly. She would gasp. She even fainted at one point, very dramatically. She insisted at sitting at the defense table with her husband and her attorney so she could hear everything they were saying to one another. She was like writing angry notes and passing them to the attorney, (laughs) denying things that how they had happened. 
the attorney was so annoyed that he went to the judge's chambers and asked the judge to kick her out of the courtroom. He was asking the judge to please kick out the wife of the defendant because he can't handle it anymore. And the judge is like, you manage your own clients, buddy. I'm not kicking her out. I feel like if you're a disruption in the courtroom, you should be kicked out. I think she was almost kicked out. She got a talking to, but then she calmed it down a little bit. She took it from an 11 to an 8. <laughs> yes. It did not reflect well on Tom. And neither did the circumstantial evidence. Though the defense did try to argue reasonable doubt because no one had actually seen Tom pull the trigger or emerge from the basement. We just have one eyewitness that believed they might have saw him or at least somebody fitting his description. That argument fell on deaf ears. The jury delivered a guilty verdict on both counts of murder, and he was sentenced to life in prison. But he was given the possibility of parole, I think, after like 15 years or something like that. Oh, my God. Yes. So this was unbelievably frustrating for Tom's defense attorney, who had been offered a 10-year plea deal due to the prosecution not having any real physical evidence because the blood evidence, he's the same type as his parents. So it's kind of a wash. So they didn't think their case was that strong. So they had offered Tom a deal, like I think pleading down to manslaughter or something for 10 years. And Pat had refused to let Tom take that deal. She said, well, if you put him away for 10 years, I might as well be dead because I'm older than him. I'll be an old lady when he gets out. So what is he going to do with me then? Absolutely not. You're not taking the deal. We're going to go to court and we're going to win. Wow. But he could have been out a lot sooner, especially with good behavior. He could have been out maybe six years. So even the judge thought that justice had not entirely been served. He did believe that Tom had had something to do with his parents dying, but he didn't necessarily believe it was premeditated murder. He actually ended up talking to Pat's parents, the Radcliffs, the Colonel and Marguerite, and he said, quote, you know, it's really sad, Mr. and Mrs. Radcliffe. That boy didn't get a fair chance. That boy was there in the basement that day of the killings. Something happened, maybe a terrible argument, but it wasn't a premeditated shooting. Why in the world wasn't this done another way? Why didn't you tell the truth? Yeah. Well, even when Tom was behind bars, he was very much still under Pat's spell. He desperately pined for her. She managed to isolate and control who had access to him. She told him that he wasn't allowed to take calls from anyone else because it would use his phone time and all of his phone time had to be spent with her. She'd smuggle in cigarettes so he could sell them for more phone time. And she'd say, oh, I'm so desperate for you, Tom. I love you so much, my sugar. And she was calling the country music station, radio station that he listened to in jail and dedicating songs to him. So she was doing everything she could to just keep him lovesick, keep him thinking that she was the only person in the entire world he had supporting him. So he's lovesick. And Pat, well, she was getting sick, sick, physically sick. She was getting physically ill as well as having anxiety without Tom's income and without a job herself. Pat seemed very likely to lose Kentwood Farm because they were paying the mortgage with his salary. And then she came down with this horrible, it was described really disgustingly, like just gross abscess on her hip. So no one knew how it had started, but it became really, really grossly infected. They described the abscess as as big as a fist. And it was like to the point where there's like striations coming out of it that you can tell there's like, the infection is going to go through the blood, urine, 
serious danger at this point. They said that she was in danger of septic shock and she had to be hospitalized and put on a ton of pain medication. They eventually had to do surgery to remove this gigantic abscess and she had like a permanent scar and indentation on her buttocks because of having this major abscess removed. So later on, we'll find out that Pat had purposely caused this and that every time it started healing, she would start picking at it with likely like dirty utensils or tools in some way. Is this part of the episode like necessary? Well, it's just kind of showing (laughs) what she was willing to go to, these lengths to get attention, to get the painkillers and also to make it appear like she was helpless because she was then allowed to take a wheelchair. So she was like looking like she was an invalid. And she, I guess, was also allowed to get closer to Tom in the wheelchair because she would get to go down to the first floor and they would not be separated by any glass. You couldn't get to that area, I guess. If you were in a wheelchair, it wasn't accessible. Unbelievable. So now she gets to be closer to him. I think she could smuggle some stuff in. So she's doing all of this. She genuinely has an issue that she has caused. But she's doing all of this also to try to manipulate people around her into giving her money. She thinks the fastest way... The fastest way to get money isn't to get a job. It's to pick at an abscess to the point where she needs to be hospitalized and then sell an oh, poor me storyline about why she needs help bailing out the farm and why she can't possibly get a job. Oh, my God. Did unemployment like exist back then? I don't really know, but I doubt it would have been enough to pay the mortgage on this 50-acre farm if it had. So at this point, Tom is writing letters to his grandparents, begging them to give his poor, sick wife, who has been so loyal and standing by him, money. She's going to lose the farm. It's her only dream. It's the only thing keeping her holding on through her sickness. You need to help her. But they're like, we already gave you guys so much money. And they had paid for Tom's legal defense. And they had stood by Tom for all of this. But they're like, we can't hey, we barely have enough in our retirement anymore to take care of ourselves and keep ourselves and pay our own mortgage. We will do our best to help Pat, but we can't bail out the farm. And so they ended up losing the farm. And at that point, it seems like Pat miraculously healed when she stopped picking at her festering wound. Oh my God, Jesse. And <laughs> Paul had a heart attack. So now he's not doing very well and he's having a hard time taking care of Nona and she's miraculously feeling better. And she's like, well, no skin off my back that you couldn't end up helping me, but let me help you. Because she had also at this point estranged their daughter, Jean, who was Walter's sister from them as well. (sighs) So there had been obviously some family issues when they decided to side with their grandson who had maybe possibly was convicted of killing their children, Jean had been like, why are you still supporting him and his brand new wife, who seems super sus, instead of wanting justice for your son and daughter-in-law who were murdered? Yeah. And so Pat had really driven that home how Jean was terrible and didn't stand by family and was untrustworthy and that they shouldn't support her in any other way. So when Paul had this heart attack, There was really only Pat there to help this elderly couple. And she bounced right into action 
the farm was sold, by the way. But before she left, mysteriously, a bunch of the outbuildings caught fire. Can you believe it? Why would she do that? Well, it shows that she didn't even have insurance on it or the policy was held by somebody else. So it wasn't for money. They think that if she did it, she did it out of pure, if I can't have it, then no one can. Yeah, that makes sense for her personality, actually. You're going to send my farm to the bank. You're going to auction it off. Well, I'll just burn everything right to the ground and you're not going to get shit. Crazy. Yeah. So she did that. And then she moved on to go take care of Nana and Pa because they were doing poorly. And when she started taking care of them, she was telling Tom, well, I don't know what I'm going to do. If your grandparents die, I don't have any legal recourse, even though I'm the one taking care of them. And so Tom got his grandparents to disinherit Jean, their daughter, and say that Tom would inherit everything. And if Tom was behind bars still, or he was dead, then Pat would get everything. I don't think it'll surprise you to find out that Nona and Pa started feeling very poorly. What? Mm, Yep. They started getting really sick and strange things started happening. At the same time, she was still making Tom's life behind bars a miserable place. She would always cause a scene when she went to visit. She would write letters accusing various corrections officers and prison officials of committing crimes. She would also write letters to Tom, letters that she knows are being opened and censored before they're passed on to him. And she would call the prison officials who were reading these letters derogatory names and slurs. So Tom was like, is she doing this to make them angry with me? Why would you write these things in a letter they're going to read? Yeah. And so everyone said that Tom was actually trying to be a model prisoner. He was doing well, but he kept getting in trouble because of Pat. And when Pat visited him, she would be tell him how depressed she was, how she wasn't doing well, how she was maybe going to die of her injuries, that she didn't think she was going to survive him getting out. And then she would bring up all of the humiliations of prison. She'd be like, so you, you have to get strip searched. Isn't that humiliating? You have to, you know, take a shit in front of another guy. That's no way to live. So she was like really depressing him. And he was getting to the point where he didn't even want to see her because every time she came to visit him, it was something dark and depressing. And then finally she said, well, I have a plan for us. This is how we can be together. It's the only way we can be together, Tom. I smuggled in these pills and you have to take an overdose. Take them right now. Take them and kill yourself. And then I'm going to take my pills out in the parking lot. I'm going to leave and I'll kill myself in the parking lot. And then we'll both be dead and we'll be in heaven and we'll be together finally. And he was like, uh, no, I'm working on an appeal. Even if there's not an appeal, I'd rather be alive in prison and have a chance on the outside than dead. This was the one thing that he would not do for his wife. Good. And she railed and she cried and she raged. We later find out that she was, for some reason, taping this conversation. I don't know why she would do that to herself. There's a tape that has evidence of her trying to talk him into killing himself in some sort of suicide pact. There's people that do that, that record them doing incriminating. Yeah. And then they, like, get off on watching themselves. I think that they record everything hoping that the other person is going to say or do something incriminating so that they can use that because that's how their brains work. And even if that means that they get caught with something incriminating, they don't think that this is something that's going to fall into somebody else's hands. 
And it only did because her daughter was moving and keeping some things for her mother. And eventually later on, much later in the story, goes through them and finds this tape. And on it, he's like, I love you, Suge. I love you. You know that I would do anything for you, Pat. I would do anything. I love you more than anything in the world, but no. And she is apparently very cold. And she goes, you don't. You might love me more than anyone, but you don't love me more than anything because you love your own life more than you love me. Wow. Yeah, that's called a healthy boundary. <laughs> You're supposed to love your own life and your relationship with yourself before any other relationship. Wowie. Oh. Tom was completely bewildered. His wife was trying to get him to kill himself. He knew that his grandparents were not doing very well, but he did not know the full extent of it. He also knew, but only tangentially at this point, that his ex-wife had lost custody of their children because she was doing some of those behaviors that we talked about and CPS got involved and ended up taking the kids away. Now, one of his uncles had taken the kids in. Okay. So they were currently with his uncle. I think it was Big Carolyn's brother. But basically, Pat had said she had tried to get custody of the kids and they wouldn't let her. And that was a lie. They had gone to her and asked her if she would take in the kids as their stepmother and she said no. So she's straight up lying to him. But he at that point doesn't know what's going to go on with their care because this uncle was a temporary situation. He could not take on the kids full time. So he doesn't know what's going on with his kids. He doesn't know what's going on with his grandparents. His wife's trying to get him to kill himself. And he's getting increasingly miserable in this relationship, obviously. Well, Nona and Pa's doctor was also getting concerned about the old couple. Despite the heart attack, Pa had, in general, been in great shape, and he had always cognitively been sharp as a tack. But by the summer of 1976, Pat was calling the doctor to say that Pa, who had literally never been a drinker in his life, was guzzling homemade whiskey, that he was showing violent tendencies. He was mixing up medications, drinking with medication. He was behaving very oddly. And the doctor thought that this was very bizarre because this just was not the man he had known for years and years. She also said that he had started vomiting quite a bit. This could be, of course, from mixing medications if he was in fact doing that. So the doctor said that he was going to pay him a call in a little bit. And for now, he would give her a prescription for an anti-nausea medication. But only a couple of days later, Pat called again saying that she wasn't able to wake Pa up. So the doctor rushed over to the house where he thought it was a very bizarre scene because she let him in like nothing was going on. And then she went back to giving Nona a sponge bath as if nothing's going on. And when he got to the bedroom, Paul was in a full on coma with like some sort of like rattling in his chest, sounding like he might aspirate on his own saliva or if he had vomited. This was a very, very bad and dangerous situation. And so he called 911. And while he's doing this, she's kind of just like acting like everything's normal. And then she just slowly drops while he's like trying to get information on what happened, what happened before this. How did he get in this state? When did you find out about the state? She starts saying that he tried to kill Nona a couple nights ago. He had tried to strangle her. And she's like, look, there's a little scrape on his arm where she had to fight him off. 
Now, none of this makes sense because Nona doesn't really have the use of her hands. So she could not fight him off if she wanted to. And also the doctor said that this type of abrasion is simply from having very delicate, fragile, old skin. And you can get it from just like barely touching something. It's like even like like a bed sore almost. So none of this is adding up. She also says that he had tried to run her off the road and that he had been doing all these bizarre and violent things. And she thinks it's because of the drinking and the mixing of medications. But the doctor was suspicious enough that he called the police. Okay. And he rushed, of course, Paul to the hospital, but Paul was in a coma. So he's being hospitalized. He is still alive, but he's just barely clinging to life at this point. And he obviously can't tell anyone what's going on. Yeah. So the police officers went to talk to Pat about Paul's allegedly erratic and potentially violent behavior, trying to kill his wife, trying to run Pat off the road. And she says she thinks she knows why he was trying to eliminate them. She starts crying and she said, I didn't want to tell you this. This isn't my story to tell. And although it will help one person, it will hurt a lot of other people. But I, I have some information that I'm not supposed to know. And I think that he was obviously aware that I knew this and he maybe got scared that I was going to tell somebody and he's been trying to kill me and kill his wife. And they're like, what are you talking about? And she said, a little while ago, he asked me to come into his room and he asked me if he could dictate a note for me to type up for him. And it was a confession. He confessed to killing his daughter and son-in-law that it wasn't Tom. So they're like, uh, excuse me. And she just like, go to his attorney's office because I typed it out for him. And then we went, we got it notarized. And then he put it in an envelope for his attorney's. And he wrote, do not open unless I'm not here or I'm passed out or something. There's some weird verbiage there. Uh huh. So they go to his attorney's office and the attorneys are like, oh, yeah, it was given to us with a bunch of other paperwork, including essentially them signing over everything that they own to Pat. Apparently she got like power of attorney and she's now the heir in the will. So they did all that. And with that paperwork came this sealed envelope. So they opened the envelope and they found an alleged confession note in which the eldest Walter said that his son, Walter, had threatened both Tom and Nono's life. So he had come over to his house and said that he was going to kill his grandson and his wife and that essentially he decided enough was enough. He was an old man and he was ashamed of how his son had grown up and he was going to end this. And so he said that he had been down in the basement when Tom came down in the basement too. So they're both down in the basement, but only Pa has the gun. And that his son, Walter, came down and started saying, I'm going to get another gun. I'm going to kill both of you. And began shooting... So as Tom begged Pa to not shoot and not shoot his dad, this elderly man shot up Walter on purpose and then Carolyn by accident while Tom was saying, oh my God, oh my God. And then he had told Tom to get out of there. Go out, save yourself. I'm going down for this. It does not explain how Pa got out of this because he certainly wasn't 
spry enough to climb out a window. So it doesn't say exactly how Paul got out of this. It's not well thought out. It's not very well thought out. The letter writer went on to say, all of his grandson's troubles and the knowledge that Tom was going to prison for a crime he had not committed had worn the writer down. The person wrote, that worried me and got my brain tired out and probably made me have the heart attack. I didn't want Tommy to stay in prison, but I ain't going to prison for killing Walter when I had to do it to keep him from killing us or putting us away. If I tell about it now, they'll stick, lock me up. This is from the confession note. I figured it wasn't your grammar. <laughs> and that'd kill mama, so I can't do it right now. But I'm telling this now so that when I die, at least they'll believe Tommy when he tells the truth. After I'm dead, mama will understand why I did what I did. I'm going to sign this in front of a witness to put in an envelope to give it to my lawyers. They can't open it till after I die. That's all I got to say. How did she get it notarized? Well, and also at the bottom of this note, there was a signature that seemed genuinely to be Pa's real signature. And it has the notary stamp, of course, and Pat's signature as the witness. So the authorities are shocked, to say the least. They're trying to parse through whether this in a strange realm could possibly be true because they have always felt like they didn't really truly know what had happened down there. So was it possible that somehow Pa got out of there undetected and got home in time to help his grandson? Maybe. Was this true? They have to look into all of this. Yeah. They can't ask Pa, of course, because he's still in a coma. But then something miraculous happens. Pa wakes up. <gasps> he's out of the coma. Is he okay? He's okay. He's with it. I mean, he's still doing quite poorly and he's a little confused. He doesn't know how he got in this situation, but he is getting increasingly more clear-headed every day longer that he's in the hospital and not around somebody who may or may not be poisoning him. Yep. So when he's finally well enough that he can talk to the police, they presented him with the confession note and said, is this true? And can you clarify on what this means? And he's like, this is the most insane thing I've ever seen in my life. This never happened. I never told Pat to write any of this down. Absolutely not. But he says, that is my signature. That's my signature. I'm so confused about what's going on here. I did not kill my son and my daughter-in-law. And they said, has Pat asked you to sign any papers? And he says, yes. Well, we had to do some stuff for the bank and for my attorneys. And she showed me where to sign. And when they went to the notary public, she said that the last paper was blank. Wow. She had basically got Walter to sign a blank piece of paper and she was going through stamping all the pages and she stamped one that she noticed was basically blank. Are they allowed to do that? No, you're not supposed to do that. I don't know how this all went down. There's just whenever these things happen, it's because somebody didn't do their job. <laughs> but she did cop to it later. And that was the page that obviously Pat had used to create this. She typed on to make this false confession. Wow. So meanwhile, at the same time that the police are looking at this situation, Jean, his daughter, who had been estranged from him by Pat, was positive that Pat was doing something to make her parents ill. And so she had contacted the state crime lab and she had essentially forced them to test for poisons. Good. 
And so the guy at the crime lab was like, look, while your dad's in the coma, go in there, clip his fingernails, get this much of his hair, send it to us, and I'll do a quick turnaround for you. And by the time they got it back, Paul was awake, and they found out his body was just chock full of arsenic. Wow. And Pat was trying to say that apparently there's arsenic in certain types of rat poisons and things that they might use on the farm. And she was like, well, Pa, you used all of those things. Like, that can definitely get built up in your system. And the police were like, not at this level, lady. Not even remotely. Nice try. And there's, like, this whole part where, like, when they find out Pa has actually been poisoned, that they find out that Pat's still in the home with Nona. And Jean is going over there and Nona thinks that Jean's evil because Pat's been conditioning her to think that she's doing all these horrible things to her. And so Jean's just trying to protect her mother until the police can get there to arrest Pat. And when they actually came to arrest, finally arrived to arrest Pat, she's like, don't let them take me away, Nona. Don't get anything tested. You don't consent to anything or else they'll take me away from you and I'm the only one who's there for you. Like it made the arresting officer so fucking angry. He was like, get her out of here. Get her out of this house. And the poor old woman is crying hysterically because she doesn't know what's going on and she's confused and she's having a hard time communicating like what's going on. It was devastating. But thankfully, finally, Pat had been arrested. They also found evidence that Pat had been writing herself checks from their checkbooks. Obviously. She had been siphoning their money off even before she was due to inherit it when she finally killed them. At this point, what they think is that she was doing this to try to get her husband out of jail and get all of their money. But it's interesting because they didn't know yet at that point that she'd also been trying to get Tom to kill himself. So I don't know why she was going with the false confession route at the same time. Because it didn't seem like she really wanted him to live either. Yeah. She's just kind of all over the place at this point, I feel like. Yeah, she also later tries to suggest that Paul really did kill Walter and Carolyn and that he was poisoning himself with arsenic because he wanted to kill himself because of what he had done. And everyone's like, no one does that to kill themselves. No one is going to be in crippling pain for weeks or maybe months as they slowly build up enough arsenic in their body to kill themselves. It's just not a way people like to go. No. So on August 6, 1976, Pat was arrested for attempting to murder her grandparents-in-law, who thankfully survived. So naturally, Tom finds out about this. And he was completely stunned because she'd been keeping him in the dark about everything. I mean, how do you, like, tell your partner that you're trying to kill his grandparents and inherit all their money? I don't even think he knew that his grandfather was in a coma. He didn't know what was going on. He was shocked that she was arrested when he thought she was the most nurturing, caring person ever. He also found out that not only had his uncle not been taking care of his children, they had been put into foster care, and then they had been adopted by separate families. So now legally... He has no recourse to get his children back. They are legally adopted by other families. And he didn't know any of this was going on somehow. So sad. It's extremely sad. It would take Tom decades to find his children and begin to 
have any sort of relationship with them. But Tom's eyes were finally beginning to open when it came to Pat. And speaking of Pat, she went to trial in May of 1977 for attempted murder. The prosecution's case was largely circumstantial, even though there's a lot of motivation here. And even though she had stolen from them, they didn't find the poison on her body or in her house. No one had actually obviously seen her poisoning them or put anything in their food. So you're still hoping that they're going to use common sense to see that clearly that's what this woman was doing. It just all adds up to that. There's not a lot of hardcore forensic evidence they have other than proving that arsenic was in both of their systems in amounts that had started while Pat was in their lives and was way too much to be an accident, essentially. So that's about it. That's what they have for physical evidence. But it still didn't look great for Pat. None of this looks great from Pat. No. And it didn't look good for her that Tom did not testify on his wife's behalf. So the jury thought she was sticking to the story that Pa had actually killed Walter and that he had actually confessed this to her. And now he lived and was trying to get out of it. But the jury was like, well, if this is true, and if the confession said that Tom was down there, then why wouldn't Tom now at his wife's trial say, yes, she's right. I've been trying to protect my grandfather, but I can't do it any longer and get himself out of jail and get his wife out of trouble. Yeah. So that was a big sticking point for the jury that Tom didn't make an appearance and he didn't try to say that. But that's because Tom would later say that that's not how it happened, obviously. And he wasn't going to try to get his grandfather thrown into prison so he could get out and be with his insane sociopathic wife. He's like, I'd rather stay in prison. (laughs) Yes. It took the jury less than four hours to deliberate. And the verdict came back. Guilty. On both counts. The judge had had quite enough with Pat and sentenced her to the maximum sentence. That was two 10-year terms to be served consecutively. So back to back. So it's looking at like 20 years. So... Anne Rule brought up the point that at the point where Pat gets convicted of trying to kill Nona and Pa, only three years had passed since they had gotten married. She had managed to do all of this damage in three years. Anne Rule wrote, only three years had passed since Pat had married into the Allenson clan. And in that space of time, the family had been well-nigh annihilated. Walter and Carolyn were dead. Tom was locked in prison, convicted of their murders. And his children had been adopted, lost to him. Pa and Nona would have arsenic in their bones until they died. They would never be the same. Jean had been forced outside of the circle of her own family. The few Allensons who were alive and walking free were full of doubt and recriminations. Pat had seemed to be a frail, dependent woman when she insinuated herself into their midst, but she had fanned each faint spark of disagreement into glowing coals of hostility and distrust that needed only a faint breeze to burst into flames. She had promised Tom love unlike any he had ever known before. Believing he saw paradise in her transparent green eyes, Tom had taken her as his wife, and she had come close to destroying him and everything he loved. Uh, Well, after Pat's conviction, Tom finally divorced Pat, and they officially parted ways. I would say this is probably the worst three-year marriage we've covered. Totally. 
this is a lot. Like a lot of times I see people who get divorced after three years and I'm like, man, three years isn't very long. What could have gone so wrong in three years? <laughs> There's a lot in this one. There's a million reasons why he should have been divorced from her a long time ago. Tom ended up reconnecting with a woman that was named Liz and she had apparently been like a childhood friend of his and had had a crush on him when they were both teenagers. And then he had gone his way and she had gone hers. And then after he was arrested, she had actually helped take care of his horses. And Aww. so she'd always, yeah, she'd always had this warm glowing spot for him. And she'd always believed he was like innocent or justified or he was just a good guy. And she felt that deep down. And so they reconnected and they fell in love. And they, I guess in Georgia at this time, you could get married in a prison ceremony, but that didn't mean you were legally married. They had another word for it. So they got like prison married and he found religion because Pat had also been keeping him from seeing the pastor in prison. Okay. She just didn't want any influence of anybody else in his life. So he was like really turning his life around. He ended up getting this like great opportunity for education and work placement and finally transferred to a really good prison, which of course, Pat had been like, you can't go to that prison because I'll never see you and I might as well be dead. So he finally is like getting his life together, even though he's still behind bars. However, his ex-wife still managed to get out of prison before him. Oh my God, stop. Pat did not end up serving 20 years. Oh no, buckle yourselves in because again, the story is not over. This bitch got out of prison after only serving seven years. Oh my God. I guess it was good behavior paired with overcrowding, but she got out in November of 1984. She was 47 years old, which is healthy and hale enough to ruin a few more lives. Oh my God. Pat went first to a halfway house and then on once more to her parents' house. I mean, they make fun of like millennials and like Gen Z for living in our parents' house too long. <laughs> She's really taking the cake She's with living it. in. Yeah. She was still an absolute terror. She became jealous of her own granddaughter, who was like, I think, five years old. Oh, my God. Her son Ronnie's daughter was living at her parents' house because of some bad family situation. And she hated this child. She collected dolls, too, Auntie. Who? Pat's collecting dolls now. Terrifying. And she would, like, accuse, like, her grandchildren of like doing something to the dolls when she was doing it to the dolls herself. And she's like narking on the kids to her elderly parents. But these are her own grandchildren. She was like meddling in her daughter's lives. She was getting involved in their marriages, resulting in both of them getting divorced eventually down the line. There was just a lot of drama. But on the plus side, Pat got a job for the first time in her life. Her looks had faded through time, jail and... I think just having Being an adulterated evil core. Yes. She's rotting from the inside out. So gone were the days that she could rely on seducing a man to get by. So she began to work as essentially like a home health nurse's aide. She did not have a nursing degree. She was not qualified to work as a nurse. Also, wouldn't that be on her resume that she poisoned two elders with arsenic? Apparently not. She got hired. I mean, I think this might have been one of those situations where she got her first job from somebody who knew somebody who wasn't really looking and doing a background check. And then by the time she got to the second family, she had references for the first family. So in the spring of 1987, she went to go work for an elderly couple named James and Betty Christ. 
They were both in their late 70s. James had advanced Parkinson's and Betty was very cheerful. She was, for the most part, very healthy, but she did have a bad knee and she had a herniated spinal disc. So she could no longer really lift him or do the things that would help care for him. So it had come time for her to get some help. But she desperately loved her husband. They'd been married for over 50 years. And she liked Pat right away. So did their grown children. So they hired Pat. And then within a week or two, Pat hired her own daughter, Debbie, to come help out as well. Okay. And Susan, who was back living in this area, I'm not sure if she was like living at the house with everybody, but she was aware of everything that was going on at this point, said that it seemed like the job was going really well because all of a sudden, Debbie and Pat had all this money. They had new jewelry. They had really nice things. And they were saying that they were just working long hours and they were just running their household and that these nice people were giving them some trinkets to say thank you for such good care. So she thought it was really suspicious because Debbie told her, well, we're making so much money. Mom is making more money than your husband, who was like an actual businessman. She was like, what is going on here? She was supposed to be paid $10 an hour to be a nurse's aide. But eventually they lost the job after a year and like two months. And Pat told Susan that something had happened with the Chris insurance. Their medical insurance changed and they couldn't afford to have the in-home care anymore. So unfortunately they had to let him go. And then Pat set out on her own entrepreneurial venture. Andy, this is your worst nightmare. She started a doll shop for specifically antique dolls. No. So it's definitely the ones where there's souls trapped inside that have been around since the 1800s. It's the soul dolls. Yep. Come play with us. <laughs> yes. And she also repaired and sewed clothes for the dolls. And Rule talks about how she's living at uh, her parents' house still and how she makes like Susan's family falls on hard times and has to move back into the house. And they have to sleep in the dining room because her mom has two rooms that are just for her dolls and she won't move her dolls out of the room. Unreal. For her children and their family. Which also, it's like, come by the haunted doll store that is run by an attempted murderess. Literally. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's so. This is very fitting for our first episode of October. It was called Patty's Pretty Playthings was the name Fuck of the store. off. <laughs> no, it's really the name of the store. Yeah, guys, this book was 643 pages because she does so much bad shit that I'm like very, working very hard to sum it up here. During this time, she also beat one of her grandsons, like cut his hair in a weird way. She may or may not have ordered a hit on one of her son-in-laws. It was Debbie's on and off husband. And she might have been poisoning her daughter, Susan, who kept getting sick for no reason and was getting very weak and later would realize that some of the things that she had were consistent with arsenic poisoning. In December of 1990, Susan got a bizarre phone call from her sister, Debbie, accusing her of getting Pat and Debbie fired from the Chris. Now, this had happened like two and a half years earlier or one and a half years earlier or something. So Susan was so confused about the whole thing. So she's like, I don't know why you're yelling at me. I don't know what's going on. I had nothing to do with those people. Mom told me that their insurance changed. So I had nothing to do with this. But Debbie was saying that like, that's where their life started going bad when they lost that great job, making all that money. And it was all because of Susan. 
that Susan had called and told Mrs. Christ lies about them. So Susan went to her husband, Bill, and was like, I don't even know what to do with this now. And he's like, I'm so tired of this. This like seems like something your mom is doing. And I'm going to get proof of it. I'm finally going to stand up to your crazy family. So Bill got the Chris phone number and he called Betty Christ. And he said, hi, have we ever talked? Do you know my wife, Susan? She is related to two caregivers you had in your home like a year and a half ago. And we just wanted to know because they're accusing us of contacting you and spreading some lies. He's like, I just want confirmation that we've never spoken before. And the Christ family had quite a bit to say about Pat and Debbie. So much so that when Susan talked to them, she went straight to the police afterwards. Oh my God, what did they say? So first of all, Debbie and Pat had presented themselves as registered nurses when neither of them had even finished high school and had no medical background or training whatsoever. Soon after starting and bringing Debbie in, Pat began isolating the husband and the wife from each other and saying that he needed to rest and the wife needed to leave him alone. And at first the wife was fighting it, but then she said that she started getting really sleepy, that she was constantly sleeping, that she was always in a daze. And eventually she was so tired that she couldn't even be awake or conscious to fight to see her husband. So they're separating them and keeping them apart. They later found out that Pat and Pat was definitely, we don't know how Debbie got hoodwinked into this or if she was like an active participant or if somehow she was tricked into this by Pat. We don't know. But their jewelry had gone missing. The father, James, had sent a Rolex watch out to be cleaned. And the person who had cleaned at the jewelry store had said that Debbie had signed it out, but they never found the Rolex. (sighs) It was gone. They found out that Pat had started running the household and paying herself. And she and Debbie went from making $10 an hour, which is what they were hired to be paid, to both of them making $10,000 a month. (laughs) And Mrs. Chris said that she was so out of it that she was just like, sure, whatever. I'll sign it. Cool. So... Their grown kids, of course, started getting confused because even though James had Parkinson's, he had been doing okay. They knew that eventually he was going to pass, but he started complaining of weird things like gut pains and numbness and pain in his limbs and specifically his feet and things that were popping up out of the blue. And also their mother, who had always been very bright and with it, was completely out of it. He had called his son and said, maybe I'm going to start giving away my Civil War artifacts, which were priceless. So all of this stuff is going on. And finally, the son managed to sneak the mom out of the home and say that they were going for like a walk to get some fresh air. And he took her to the hospital and he got blood work done. And he found out that she was just full of sedatives that were not prescribed to her. There was like a sleeping drug and another like painkiller type drug. And she had just been getting drugged the whole time. And within a couple of days, she was back to normal. 
And so, of course, they fired the two of them, which is when they actually got fired. But by the time that they got these two out of their household, James was doing very, very poorly. And Betty just wanted whatever remaining time that she had to be with her husband. And she didn't want to put him through a whole trial or going in to see the police all the time and dealing with it. So they just decided to write it off as a horrible loss and a lesson and spend what time she had less with her husband. But it it really wasn't that long after Pat and Debbie were fired that he passed away. Did Debbie know about this? I don't know if they knew about him dying. And definitely Debbie wasn't the ring leader in this. Debbie had had her own issues. She had been arrested for solicitation. She was working as a sex worker and there had been some highly publicized arrest. And she was looking at this as a way to turn her life around. So it seems unclear how much of the illegal activity was Pat's doing because Pat could have even told her, oh, they like our care so much that they're giving us a raise, you know? Totally. So we don't know. But I mean, she was complicit in something. You should know something's going on here, especially if you're drugging this woman to the gills when she doesn't need it. Yeah. I think the thing that was the most heartbreaking about this was that Mrs. Christ did not care about any of the material things that Debbie and Pat had stolen from her. She was devastated that they had robbed her of over a year with her beloved husband. Yeah. All of those months that she had been completely drugged and out of it and sleeping, she essentially lost the last year of his life because of what these women did. So sad. And that's something no one could ever get back. And Susan's like, you know that my mom was convicted of poisoning her in-laws. And they were like, oh, my God, we had no idea. So they had no idea. They had no idea that they weren't really registered nurses. I'm sure that they would have gone about filing charges in a different way had they known that this is a pattern of behavior. But as it stood, James had been cremated. Now, arsenic is one of the very few poisons that you can potentially pull up. Get. Yeah from ashes because it is in the bones. However, I don't know what the situation was, but I think that you lose those ashes after testing. They're like destroyed or changed somehow in the testing process. And they decided not to have the ashes tested. However, that didn't matter to the investigators who opened an investigation in early 1991 and were very interested in what Pat had going on. And they still wanted to know what really happened to the Allensons because no one had believed what lie they had been selling. So they really wanted to know, and what was Pat's culpability in it? Because now we're looking down some 20 years later and she has tried to kill four people. She has also ordered a hit on her son-in-law. She's displayed all sorts of sociopathic behavior. So how was she connected to those murders? And they decided that it was finally time to talk to Tom now that he is not married to her. Now, Tom, at this point, had been very recently paroled. He was still on parole. And he was gainfully employed. And he was happily married to his wife, Liz, apparently lucky number four. And this is kind of cute. It's the woman who loved him since she was a little girl. He didn't really want to get pulled back in this. He had started a program that helps ex-convicts assimilate into society and have support. He was doing good things with his life. And he's like, I don't really want to get involved in all this again. But they convinced him because of 
the fact that Pat was still out there and hurting people. So he said, obviously, he'd had a lot of time to think about this. And he finally told them what really happened. He said that he had not wanted to try to reconcile with his mother or his father. He wanted to leave well enough alone, but that Pat had convinced him to go over and talk to his mother while his father was still at work. She was fully aware that that is where he was going and told him to do so. Tom said that when he arrived at the house, though, the door was locked and his mother was not home. She must have come home later than he thought because he thought she was going to come home right after lunch and she didn't actually come home until after four. So he was worried that he was a sitting duck, like that his dad was going to pull in and see him standing there as he knew his dad was armed. So he decided, now this is the part where it gets like a little hinky to me, this whole confession. Although I would like to say that Anne Rule went to the basement where this happened and she believes in Tom's version of this story. So he said that he was freaked out. He wanted to hide because he thought like maybe his dad was coming. And so he went into the basement through a window. So he was in the basement. So he was in the basement and he heard his mother come home. And then shortly after his dad showed up, but also around the same time, his ex-wife and their kids. So now the kids were running around like in and out of the house and he was afraid to leave because he was afraid the kids were going to see him and then they were going to alert his father to his presence. So he was trying to wait until everybody went somewhere or settled in the house and were inside and then he was going to try to sneak out. Okay. He has no idea who cut the wires. He said he absolutely did not. He doesn't know what happened. He thinks he was set up somehow by someone because he had nothing to do with that and that had nothing to do with him. He's hiding in this like cubby hole when his dad first came down and he was really quiet. And that was why Walter didn't think he was down there. And when he came back up, he heard Walter telling the officer that he was going to take care of it himself and like basically like load the gun. And so now he's terrified and he really doesn't want to move. He doesn't want to go anywhere because he doesn't want his dad to see him. Yeah. So he's hiding down there when something happens and Walter comes storming back in and does see him. So he's ducking in this cubby hole trying to like get out of the way while his dad starts firing at him. And that's when he's like down on the ground and he's grasping around and he finds in the basement another shotgun. Now, this again, it to me seems very coincidental, but Anne Rule thinks that this is the type of person that would have just a ton of guns lying around. Okay. And so he then picks up the gun, he says, to defend himself. In the melee of all this and the mom getting shot, it seems what happened and why it seemed like maybe there was more than one shooter was because it seems like Carolyn came down and while Walter was firing at Tom, Tom popped up and started firing at Walter, but he may have hit Carolyn. He may have hit his mother. And they don't know whether this was Carolyn aiming to shoot or whether when she was shot, it was just a trigger reflex. She shot the gun that she was bringing down the stairs and it hit Walter. But Walter was also hit by Tom's bullets and Tom acknowledges that he shot his father. He had not meant to kill his mother, but it seems likely based on all the trajectory that it was probably Tom's gun that shot his mother. So he says all of this, it's very hard for him to talk about, but he says that when 
the dust cleared and he saw what happened. He was horrified and he did flee because he didn't know what to do. But then he told Patty he wanted to go and turn himself in. He was going to explain that it was self-defense and it was this crazy situation. And she was like, absolutely not. You're not doing that at all. And you're going to stick to my plan and I'll make sure you're okay. And that was why she was with him every step of the way to make sure that the focus stayed on Tom and not her own involvement in all of this. And that's why she made terrible legal decisions for him and tried to ultimately silence him with suicide eventually and didn't even let him take a plea deal. Because if he took the plea deal, he'd have to tell them exactly what actually happened. Pat also had seemed surprised to see him alive. And we have to remember at that point, she did not know that Tom had been officially disinherited. So authorities believe that Pat was the anonymous female caller who told Walter to get home quick. She may have even been the one who cut the phone line. She had manipulated a situation in which death was almost guaranteed between two angry men and a load of weapons and a house in which they can't see and they can't call the police. If all three Allensons died that night, perhaps Pat thought she, as Tom's legal wife, stood to inherit their wealth. After Tom didn't die, however, she did all she could to silence his voice and keep him locked away forever. The DA's office eventually felt like they had enough evidence to charge Pat and Debbie with seven counts. Aggravated assault with intent to murder, aggravated assault. There was impersonating a registered nurse a few counts of violating the Georgia Controlled Substances Act. But the one thing that Pat was really scared about was that they were waving in front of her face that Tom was talking for the first time and that she had never been charged with murder and that let's see where these conversations go because maybe you'll be looking at murder for the Allensons murders as well. And the investigators really believe she had more to do with it if they could have kept investigating and found out her culpability. But unfortunately for them, and they were really mad at the DA's office about this, the DA made a deal with Pat that they would not come after her for the Allensons murder in exchange for her taking a deal and going to prison for eight years. Actually eight years? No, she only served three. <laughs> I know. I don't know what it is about Slippery Pat over here. She keeps getting out of it. And that's like, that's not all. She was released in 1994. She moved in with her stepfather, the colonel, who was her father her whole life, who had remarried, I think, one of Pat's aunts because Marguerite had died. I think he married like either her sister or her cousin. And so she's back in living with the colonel again. She reopened her creepy doll shop, Pat's pretty playthings, and apparently started a tidy little side business selling prescription painkillers because in 2008, she was charged with doctor shopping after it was discovered that Pat had somehow acquired more than 3,700 painkillers in less than a year. <laughs> Fraudulently. Pat single-handedly started the opioid crisis. <laughs> she did. Could you imagine? She's like sewing little packets into the creepy dolls and selling them for different amounts. Wink, wink. It's like, here, you get some uh, oxys and a curse. <laughs> <laughs> she was convicted on three counts of unauthorized distribution, but somehow Pat only received probation for this. Unreal. 
Well, if Pat is still alive today, I don't really know if she is for sure because she uses a different name now. She should. <laughs> she should. She'd be 86 years old. She might even need some home health aids, Andy, or be at a nursing home herself. And if the Karma Fairy is around, I hope she gets the tender, loving care that she once so generously gave to the others in her care. Oh my gosh, I cannot even imagine the generational trauma that that woman has inflicted on her children and their children. I'm hopeful that Susan breaks the cycle. She's on the show. She seems like she has a good moral code. And it was very hard for her, and Rule talks about it in her book, because the entire family turned their back on Susan. Pat had convinced them all that Susan was lying and trying to get her in trouble and turned her own grandparents against her. I mean, she was also scared to death because apparently somebody tried to run her off the road and she was getting harassing calls and things were happening. It was a very hard time and it was a very brave thing that Susan did. Okay, so I do have a Wikipedia fun fact. Wikipedia fun fact. There is a two-part Lifetime movie. It's, they call it a miniseries, but it's just two parts. So I feel that's just like more like a two-part movie. It's three hours. It's from 2009. If you guys want to see it, it's like freebie on Amazon, but I think it's also on Peacock. I think that's what I watched it on. If you get Peacock, you love a Peacock. I have like every streaming service. It's such a waste of money, but I do love the shows on Peacock. So it's called Everything She Ever Wanted. It is largely based on Anne Rule's book, which is also our primary source for today. And it stars a deliciously evil Gina Gershon. Wow. As Pat. And I would say that is generous, but it's pretty apt. When you see pictures, you can see it. The one thing I liked is that they changed when she gets out of prison and she goes to annihilate the Christ family. They had changed it because they had really like leaned into her being this sexual dynamo. So it couldn't just be like drugging some nice old people and stealing from them. They changed the whole narrative of that bit where the couple she was helping was a guy who had been in an accident and was a paraplegic and his entirely healthy wife who just needed a little help and had her seduce the guy and he was like giving her cars and everything and then kill the otherwise healthy wife. They started drugging her and then they killed her. So I was like, that's more fun for the lifetime narrative, but that did not happen. Amazon reviewers gave it a 4.3, which isn't bad. That's not bad. Out of five? Yeah. My favorite review is titled White Trash, three stars. They wrote, think of a bad Raquel Welsh playing the role of an oversexed, greedy, conniving woman who will do anything to get her own way. This is a fluff piece, but it did help me pass three hours of time. Well, <laughs> when I go to her like cinematography, it, that doesn't even come up. <laughs> Gina Gershon. Yeah, when I go to her, like, <laughs> what she's been in, it doesn't even, like, that one doesn't exist. Not even if you scroll to 2009? No. She erased it from her IMDb. It was also strange because she had this very thick Southern accent, but no one else in the show really had a Southern accent. So it's like she leaned in, but, like, the rest of the group project did not. <laughs> so funny. Yeah, it's ridiculous. I do not recommend watching the whole three hours. It's a lot. But if you guys want to pop it on because you already have Peacock or it's on freebie and just see this, it might be worth just checking it out for the visuals. In conclusion, when your spouse and the love of your life tries to convince you to off yourself, maybe they don't have your best interests at heart. Yeah, or when she tries to sell you creepy ass vintage dolls, she definitely doesn't have your best interests at heart. <laughs> 
Oh, full of the souls of children and some oxies on the side. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one gets cursed by a 180-year-old child trapped in a doll. <laughs> <laughs> See you next time. Bye. Bye.